This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday to you. You did it. You made it through another week. And boy, was it a tough week. Uh, but man, I can't tell you, I've never been more excited. At uh, about three, well, in about three hours or so, we got to start getting ready to pick up my son from the airport. Yes! Haven't seen the boy for two years as he's been away serving an LDS mission. And uh, today we pick him up. And it's then, you know, then you get to solve all the other problems of the world. Like what's cool, <laughs> what, what we're going to do next. All those fun You get things. time. Just enjoy the weekend. Oh, I know. I'm so excited. It's going to be great. And by the way, uh, interesting stories coming out of Florida now. The, again, we, we talk about the complexity of a system. The Florida shooting where 17 people were killed. Uh, now we're finding out that a police officer that arrived on the scene that was, I guess, the resource officer on campus, for the yeah. school – Never entered the building, never went in to confront the shooter. Originally, I heard he was on a different part of campus. Yeah. So his response time was yeah. delayed. Like four delayed. minutes, right? Yeah. Well, now they're saying he just stood outside the building for four minutes. Ooh. He's on camera. They see yeah. him standing there with a the gun on his hip, and he had a radio. He used yeah. the radio a couple times, but never entered the and building. And the sheriff like was like, to. yeah. Well, what, they asked the sheriff, what was he supposed to do? And he's like, he was supposed to go into the building, enter the building, right. find the guy, kill the guy. Yeah. That was his job. Since Columbine, that's how you respond. That's how we do it. And meanwhile, then, so he has now uh, retired mm-hmm. and quit and is, I guess, under investigation or whatever they do in the police department. But then two other uh, deputies that were involved in investigating the shooter are, have also been put on um, some type of leave because they didn't do a great job investigating. Wow. Left some loopholes open. So. Notice what we're learning. We're learning. It's a complex issue. Does it involve guns? Yes, absolutely. Are there things we should go do about guns? Yes, absolutely. In fact, even the NRA might even concede some of those points. Um, Is it a mental health issue? Absolutely. It wasn't just an FBI issue. Mm -mm. Remember the, the pain and the beating up that the FBI took? A few days ago, it wasn't just an FBI issue. We're finding out the other investigating officers also had problems. I mean, there's a lot of complexity to solving these things. But if we don't divide it and we don't polarize it, guess what? We might actually start to solve the county some sheriff. Of these. Also went on to say that uh, what they received a tip in November that the shooter could be a school shooter in the making. Oh boy! Right? He said they didn't. It didn't get written up. So it wasn't passed along. A relative had called the sheriff's office and asked it to seize the shooter's guns weeks before the tip. By the way, so relatives are doing what they can do. Right. And uh, two years earlier, a deputy investigated a report that the shooter planned to shoot up the school with nothing coming of the investigation. So the, the, mm. the sheriff's department ran into the guy. There's three different times yeah. where something should have been done. So, again, like you're saying, this is it. there's process. It's not happening. The FBI has problems. This sheriff is important to learn, too, right? So every investigating uh, school district, every investigating sheriff's department in the country – needs to pay attention to this because right now there might be 20 more out there that could easily just be stopped by simply doing something different today. Well, and even since the shooting, you've had several teachers and administrators putting uh, putting the kibosh 
on several other hoaxes and threats that have been found on social media. So you have people doing what they're supposed to be doing. The frustrating thing is, it's just like every other time, it's probably going to phase out. Yeah. And, you know, there will be a lot of talking, but maybe not a lot resolution. Yeah, that's probably why you have to strike when the iron's hot. Like, get a lot of these things done, which also says there's a lot of... There's a lot of maybe rules that need to be passed right now and tightening of procedures and systems. And, and it's the students who are doing something oh, about great. it. It really is. And it, it, yeah, but what about the guns? Yeah. Okay. That's part of it. That's Let's say that's, that's a quarter of it, right? Let's get the mental health working a little bit better. Let's start investigating these things a little bit better. It's a complex issue. And by the way, I think you're going to see more and more issues that are this complex – we're already seeing like terrorism isn't as simple as we thought it was. Hmm. It's a complex issue. And so in a complex world, you have to find complex solutions. We can do it. We'll figure it out. Will it eliminate these in the future? No. I don't think you can possibly eliminate mass shootings. I don't think you can get rid of every possible scenario. But you can. I mean, I mean, short of putting everyone in a hermetically sealed there's, envelope and There's also everybody. the element that how many schools are in America – yeah. There's like 30,000, whatever the number is. And then how many school shootings happen? It's a small percentage, but yeah. they get blown up in the sense of they're, that's on TV. Right. We see these people for a week. It seems like – and your mind goes to this is a bigger problem. And, and so we start making decisions that are based on those emotions rather right. than let's – how big is this? How can we what, – what's the actual scope of it? Not to minimize what right. happened. No. But it's not like it's happening across the country and it's just this well, widespread And, and these are school shootings, right? So right. – but then let's just move to the old office shootings, which are just as prevalent. Right. And let, then let's what? Move to terrorist acts. I mean San Bernardino happened at a company party. Mm-hmm. But it was a terrorist act, but it was also access to a company party. So these are – this is this isn't just going away and it's not a single issue problem. Mm-mm. So the minute your mind says it's about one thing, you're setting yourself up to not look at the other 50 things that we could be doing. And by the way, there are – there are – there's power in every sheriff's office. There's power to start fixing – at least how we investigate this stuff today. In every FBI office, we can investigate it better. We, in every state, we can pass better laws. Um, and then and, and managing guns, there's certain laws on guns right now we could pass today that ought to be passed. So anyway, complex issue. Don't ever make it about one thing. Let's get to the rest of the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? President Trump on Thursday floated the idea of offering a little bit of a bonus for teachers who are trained and armed. You can't hire enough security guards, but you could have concealed carry weapons on the teachers, the president said. Uh, When asked he would support uh, using federal funds to arm teachers, he said, I would, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, when he said this, this sounded so absurd, except when he clarified that this was concealed weapon permit kind of mentality, which an inner city teacher may not ever think of having a gun, hmm. but a Midwest teacher mother that goes hunting with her family every you know every fall, this and as you were talking, pretty about, normal. You were talking about how complex the issue is. Yesterday, uh, CBS News talked to a teacher in Colorado, small town. Yeah. And he is a concealed carry uh, uh, permit holder, but he also carries in school 
the, the, yeah. by the, with the permission of the school district. And part of the problem there is they're in a small town. They're probably 10 to 15 minutes away from anyone who could deal with a school shooter. Right. And so if someone's in the school, what are they supposed to do? Right. They can't afford security guards. The school district doesn't have yeah. the money for that. The security apparatuses of metal detectors and all that stuff, they can't afford that. So what do you do in that right. situation? It's not like you've got to go get Gladys Jones, the type teacher. Do they still teach type? Oh, yeah. The, type, the keyboard instructor to go start packing heat. It's not like you've got to do that. There are – we've trained – and we've trained, what, hundreds of thousands of people with weapons in the military. Right. And many of them are teachers. And many of them are already carrying. It's just simply can you allow them to carry on campus, which is in some places not allowable. But – Again, again, a now, complex issue. The question in a statement Thursday from the American Federation of Teachers, their president Randy uh, Weingarten said, "Her union's position is firm, even among teachers who are gun owners. Teachers don't want to be armed. We want to teach. We don't want to be, and would never have the expertise needed to be sharpshooters. No amount of training can prepare an armed teacher to go up against an AR-15." Yeah. Well. Hmm. Right. Right. By go. the way, until. You have an AR-15 in the hallway, and no amount of training can help a teacher that's unarmed know how to handle that either. Right. So whether you're armed or not armed, when you're facing an AR-15 or whatever, it's a different game, no matter what. Another is the Broward County School Board has asked the Florida State Legislature for $28.5 million to tear down and rebuild the building where the mass shooting took place at uh, Stoneman Douglas High School last week. The request... Some also includes uh, 450000 for a memorial in honor of the 17 people who died. The district announced its intention to knock down Building 12, where the campus shooting took place. Legislators promised to provide resources for that project. Hmm. The building uh, served 900 freshmen out of the school's 3,300 students. The sheriff's also all, they announced also they will uh, step up their... Uh, the school's going to be guarded with deputies carrying rifles, including AR-15s. Well, that won't be traumatic. Not at all. So that's, but that's, that's, you got, that's what are you going to do? It's a gun that's used. That's, this is also what's, this is their life today. This caused a bit of a stir yesterday. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, their new mission statement notably removes its previous reference to America as a nation of immigrants. In an email sent to staffers Wednesday and obtained by uh, The Intercept, the agency director, and my wife, for one other, I saw this, she sent me the email. Uh, The director uh, circulated the agency's new mission that said this this simple, straightforward statement clearly defines the agency's role in our country's lawful immigration system and the commitment we have to the American people. The new statement also excluded the word customers, which previously described those the agency served, claiming that the term uh, use leads to the erroneous belief that applicants and petitioners rather than the American people are whom we ultimately serve Hmm. at the Immigration and Customs Office, where they don't, I mean, the only people that interact with that office are dealing with people coming into the country. Right. Right. Well, and you know people that... That are bringing people into the country for a university in order to bring some of the best minds from around the world to come teach at universities Mm -hmm. because those that expertise does not reside in certain places. Right. So that's weird. And then, too, you heard about are you going to talk about California ice? Yeah. And that's. Trump was talking about pulling ice out because the sanctuary cities. Let's let California handle it themselves. Let's see what happens when. We quit 
enforcing everything that ICE enforces and just let California handle it all themselves and see what happens to well, the... I, ICE enforces. They, they do what they do. The police just don't want to be the people that are, that are out there Bringing enforcing federal right. laws. No, right. there's, there's people to do that, right? Well, right, except they're supposed to work in partnership. But it's, a, it's kind of a scary thought that the president would say we're pulling out federal yeah. border patrol and protections... Stop arresting people at courthouses when they're trying to. The problem is, is when you have someone trying to work with local police, but then the then you know they don't trust you because you're going to bring ICE in to get arrested. Right. How do you stop crime locally if the people there won't work with you because they're afraid you're going to come deport them? Right. For right. just existing because they haven't they haven't right. broken any crimes. Right. They haven't done anything wrong. So that's really the the problem, and no one's addressing that problem. Right. They're just you know fighting back and forth, and this problem is going to persist with the sanctuary cities. Teachers across West Virginia walked off the job Thursday, marched onto the state capitol building in Charleston to protest low wages and insufficient benefits causing the vast majority of public schools in the state to close. All of the state's 55 counties had teachers participating in the planned two-day walkout. About 275,000 students missed class. Teachers and staff were protesting a 2% pay raise passed by the legislature and signed by the governor saying the money wasn't enough to cover the rising cost of their health uh, health insurance plans. Mm. So uh, they don't feel like they're, uh, they're being covered. It says in 2016, West Virginia ranked 48th in average teacher salaries, higher than only Mississippi, Oklahoma, and South Dakota. Wow. So this is the second day of the two-day walkout. Uh, kids got a two-day weekend. Or well, an extra two days to yeah. the weekend. Right? I think we did a, we did a walkout... And I, I can't remember what it was for, but it wasn't, it was just, for us, it was just. For the kids? Not going to school. It wasn't the students? Or it was the, it was students, the students or was the teachers? Okay. We had a, we just a sit out. It's you talking they, about President's Day? No, they were canceling something. Hmm. So anyway, oh. it just reminded me that I wish we had had something worth fighting for. Hmm. But at the time. Because you don't re- remember the cause, do you? It felt like a yeah. really big deal. Yeah. Finally, new research from an Oxford University team recently unveiled new tools that can help identify how far any place in the country is from a city or another place. Using the research, the Washington Post found that Glasgow, Montana is the so-called middle of nowhere. Oh, wow. (laughs) Researchers working on the Malaria Atlas Project, which includes 22 authors from Oxford's Big Data Institute, spent more than two decades building a map that identifies just how long it takes to cross any spot on the planet based on its transportation types, vegetation, slope, elevation, and more. According to the Washington Post, the group says the data can help identify ways to help the poor. Hmm. How can we better utilize uh, materials and food and things, get them to the areas that are underserved, that kind of thing, right? The uh, Washington Post used the data to pinpoint every populated place in the country. The Post then looked to find one place that represents the middle of nowhere or a place that's far enough from all towns and cities to be considered the middle of nowhere. It says the study defined a town as a place with at least 1,000 people and its population and a city as a place with at least 75,000 people. So those are your parameters okay. for a okay. town and a city. Yeah. Glasgow, Montana is that place. The town is roughly four and a half hours away from any other place that has at least 75,000 people in it, making it the so-called wow. middle of nowhere. So you would have to drive four hours to get to a big store. Sounds like it. Or just a store. Right. <laughs> so when that came out, people started calling there, and they're like, yeah, it's a nice, quiet place. You just, you know, 
Get your food storage yeah. up to date. Yeah, in the you, middle of nowhere. You got to travel to stock up, but you know if you enjoy that lifestyle. See, I think the people in the East may not appreciate the West. No. And its emptiness. You know what I mean? Is you, appreciate absolutely. the right word? All you got to do is because in the East, you drive. I love like the Midwest because you can get to a really big city about every hour and a half. You know, Chicago, Cleveland, mm-hmm. Cincinnati, yeah. Indianapolis, boom, boom. You're just hitting city after city. But you start getting to the West and it's a drive. There's turns, a lot of nothing in yeah, between. Like Salt Lake to Vegas is how long? Five hours? Four? Five hours? Mm. Salt Lake to Reno is like five hours? No, eight hours? No, no, it's seven hours. Seven hours? Mm. Salt Lake to Colorado, Denver? Well, here's the, good point. the thing that always makes me laugh. We'll have a big storm here. Yeah. Right? It'll cause a lot of problems. You'll hear about like all the crashes and right. stuff. And nothing is talked about anywhere that we had this storm. Yeah. 12 hours later, Denver's in a lot, you know, snowed in. There's yeah. ice everywhere because they get the same storm. Yeah. But it's Denver. Right. So on the uh, bigger cities, East Coast right. is where all the news is, right? In their mind, it goes, you got the eastern United States, then there's Denver, and then you get to California. That's how the country's laid out, right? <laughs> That's how it works. All the rest of it is just, just extra space. Extra places. Yeah. I noticed how you skipped St. George, by the way, on the way to Vegas. No, I'm thinking I'm thinking big that, cities. That's, Come on. That's drive-by country? Dixie. Sort of flyover, it's drive-by. Yeah. Washington, Hurricane. Yeah, yeah but those are, those are still, those are what, 150,000 people? I'm talking <laughs> half a million people. Hurricane? Yeah. yeah. I think in, in, the, in the South, they call it a hurricane. Yeah. But. Yeah. In the South of Utah, they call it a hurricane. Hurricane. Um, Interesting. So there is a there is a you know middle of nowhere. Glasgow, Montana. It's the middle of nowhere officially. Maybe they'll put it on their like welcome to Glasgow, middle of nowhere. It's interesting. I think I think there is some sort of charm to that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But then you know the longer you live there, the more you realize this is really inconvenient. Except they probably just love it. Like you know that feeling you get when you're going home, and like like three hours later you're still going there. <laughs> and then another hour later, you actually arrive there, and you think, I forgot to buy soap. <laughs> and you know it's another five hours to go get the soap and five hours back. There's a new <sighs> show on Netflix. It takes place in a town called Boring, Oregon. Is there such a town? Oh, is it, okay. We probably shouldn't not, say the name of the show. Okay. I'm not sure what it's called. <laughs> Uh, but it's called. I just the first part. First part of the show, the kids are out standing in front of this thing, this the, the sign for the town, and like, hey, there's some people there. And they're like, hey, kids, come take a picture. And they take the picture, and they just keep going. And the kid goes, you ever notice no one actually drives into town? They just take a picture <laughs> of the sign and keep going. Yeah, yeah. It's like, why get off the road and go into town? Crazy stuff. That boy, what a country we live in. From the east, where you're just packed deep, sell it cheap. To the Midwest, spread out a bit, and then to the West, where, you know, there is you're, – you're, you're in the middle of nowhere. Pretty cool. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about the end of loyalty, the rise and fall of good jobs in America. Uh, interesting insights about uh, the future of the workplace.
Why is a job that offers affordable insurance plans, decent pay, good benefits, and a retirement plan so hard to find, uh, you know, today in our day and age? Well, in Rick Wartzman's book, The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America, he shows how big businesses once took responsibility for their workers' benefits and pay and job security, and man, how the times have changed since then. Now college students entering the workforce can expect to find contract work, outsourcing, and should expect to retire at a much older age if they can retire at all. So we've asked Rick to come talk to us today about this and his book, The End of Loyalty. Rick, thank you for being with us this today. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, it's, it is, it, boy, times have changed. I remember uh, my grandfather-in-law once telling me, you know what, you get a job and you hang on to that job forever. But now we live in a world, it seems like, where we're going to have four or five careers and a lot less security. Yeah, I think you, you really hit something important there, which is that, you know, people may have multiple careers as opposed to just multiple jobs. It actually wasn't uncommon even in this post-war era, you know, through the 50s and 60s. Studies show that men, it was mostly men in the workforce then, um, would jump around from employer to employer earlier, early in their career. But then they would, you know, settle on one place and often be there 25, 30, 35, 40 years. Um, some of the studies from that earlier period show, you know, people could have 10, 12 different jobs before settling in. Now, though, you know, I think, one, people are moving around throughout their careers much more. Um, they are changing careers um, out of necessity, as you noted. Mm. Um, and if they are going, often they're going less because they want to and more because they're being pushed out through downsizing, that kind of thing. Interesting. Now, in, the, in your uh, project on, on the book, The End of Loyalty, you followed uh, some companies, some some major corporations, and and kind of talked about the ups and downs of those companies. What were the companies you followed, and what did you notice happening with them? Yeah, so uh, I tell this story, and I, I write narrative history, so it really is a story, and I, I tell it through the lens of four really iconic American companies, so General Electric, General Motors, Kodak, and Coca-Cola. And um, I settled on those four in part as a narrative device. They were all founding members of uh, an organization, um, actually, that was founded in late 1942 called the Committee for Economic Development. It's still around today, now part of the conference board, this business group. And um, this was a group of leading executives who were really trying to lay out what the social contract, if you will, between employer and employee should be in post-war America. They were really concerned about all these servicemen uh, coming back from the war, and they worried that another depression might set in unless they provided good jobs with good opportunities. So I then weave in and out of those four companies really over a 70-year arc from the end of World War II uh, up until today. And, um, and what you see is, is a lot of commonality. You see the rise of the social contract, uh, stable jobs, good job security, ever-rising pay, good benefits and, and ever-improving benefits, health care and, and pensions. We used to have these things called pensions mm, right. and, uh, in the private sector. And, uh, and all of that then, you know, kind of builds through the early 1970s and then really begins to erode uh, and, again, continuing to unravel uh, as we speak. What, what was the unraveling? What caused the unraveling of this, this social contract? So there were a number of factors, um, both for its rise and, and for its fall. 
Um, look, some look at that post-war period and some historians, and I, I think rightfully, make the point that uh, that, was a, that was a unique period. That was an extraordinary time. Um, we had, that is, the U.S. had just uh, you know, sort of bombed our global competition out of existence, and, and big American corporations could afford to be extraordinarily generous uh, with their workers. Um, you had a period after the war, you know, big demographic changes, uh, kind of the, the rise of the baby boom, the explosion of suburbia, the rise of this giant consumer culture uh, in the United States. Um, and so things were really ripe for uh, an economy that was growing extraordinarily fast, productivity was rising, um, and workers shared in those gains. Um, beginning in the 70s, first of all, you had a lot of weaknesses begin to show. Uh, that had been forming beneath the surface over, you know, the, the prior decades. So um, American companies that, as I said, were once so dominant on the global stage, uh, by many measures got a little fat and lazy, and uh, we began to be out-innovated by the Japanese and the Europeans and, and others. And, um, uh, you know, it was, it was a time where we began to lose market share in, in key industries um, and we know this story, right? Consumer electronics and autos and right. steel and so on. Um, all that happened. We had the wallop of a, uh, a, a giant uh, recession, uh, actually two of them back-to-back in the, in the early 70s, along with high inflation, this right phenomenon known as stagflation. So the economy got very weak, expo- you know, further exposing the weaknesses of these American corporations. And then the rise of all these things that we still talk about and are very much a factor global competition and globalization, automation really beginning to take a bite out of both the factory floor uh, and back office kinds of operations. The rise of temp work and uh, the outsourcing of jobs over time, the decline of unions, a huge factor in all of this. Mm. Um, And, you know, the shift from what was really kind of a blue-collar culture, um, you could walk into a factory know, some kind of plant with very little education uh, back in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. And it was really, really hard work, but you could find a path to the middle class. And we've now shifted into a knowledge economy where really not very many of those jobs, if any, exist anymore. Even factory work now, you need to be numerate and literate and often have some kind of technical certificate to land any kind of decent job. And there are far fewer of those. So we we have this barbell economy now where you have very low-end service work and, you know, doesn't pay much and the benefits are terrible on one end. And then very high-end kind of knowledge worker jobs on the other, you know, Silicon Valley software developers being kind of the classic in this, this new world model. Hmm. Um, and then the last factor, which is really, really important, is there has definitely been a shift in corporate culture where coming out of the Great Depression and World War II, Employers really did, and, and you could call this paternalism, but they really did, um, I think, feel a measure of responsibility to take care of all of their stakeholders. So their shareholders, for sure, um, wanted and, and, you know, they tried to give a, a re- fair return to them. But they, they talked about taking care of the communities they operated in, their customers, and their employees. And they talked about this kind of best balanced interest model. They, they wanted to balance the interests of all of these constituencies. We've now moved to a model, and, and it sort of started in the kind of mid-70s in academic circles and then permeated the realm of practice by the 80s and ex- accelerated through the 90s and 2000s and into today, 
where the shareholder is really at, very explicitly at the top of the pyramid. And this idea of maximizing shareholder value above all else um, has really taken root in corporate America, and the worker has gotten squeezed out as a result. Interesting. And then, so does this change kind of from shareholder or to shareholder, from stakeholder? I guess that has then been the end of the loyalty, too. It has. I mean, when you operate under that model, and and in turn, what we've done is we have change the compensation system for top executives right so that their pay their the way they are paid is now um, tied uh, again very explicitly to uh, the company's stock price and often its rise in the short term and when you are going to incentivize people that way suddenly workers and much else just looks like an avoidable expense right the quickest way to raise profits and to make the stock price go up is to cut expenses and so employees then don't look like assets that you invest in through higher compensation and worker training. And those things have fallen away in large part because those are very easy ways to cut costs. And again, this is just a short-term play, right. but make the, make the share price pop. And you can walk away very rich as a, as a result of that if you're a CEO or you know, other very senior uh, executive. Yeah. Again, we're speaking with Rick Wartzman, who, uh, in addition to being the author of the book, The End of Loyalty, is the director of the K.H. Moon Center for Functioning Society at the Drucker Institute, a part of Claremont Graduate University. And um, it's interesting when I when I was reading about this and, and getting caught up on this, the the real the real shift that's taken place because it's it's now about employees and what we even think we can get from a company where we, we really are more it seems like even into our own freedom our own ability to like maybe be a contract worker maybe just as valuable to us today than it would then you know being a full-time employee to one company back in the day yeah that's right i mean look as as corporations sort of um eroded loyalty uh, and the expectation of loyalty from their side and and you know again this happened you know manifested itself really through kind of big surges of downsizing through the 80s and 90s and big factory closures through america through the 70s 80s and 90s um, you know those things just didn't happen in this post-war period i mean it wasn't until i think it was 1984 that uh... the federal um, bureau of labor statistics even began to to track what they call displaced workers hmm. um, before the expectation was if you were laid off um, it was often a temporary thing and that you know for the recession ended the business cycle turned back up um, you had been furloughed, but you'd be offered your old job back when business turned back up. Right. And the model really changed so that during these, you know, down periods, companies restructured, and often even during up periods, they would restructure, and you know, get rid of tens, tens of thousands of jobs um, in one fell swoop. Um, and so, yeah, the the you know, kind of loyalty I think ended first on the corporate side, but in turn, you're right. I mean, many employees. Um, now feel less loyalty in turn to an employer, um, often now feel like, hey, I'm going to jump at the next best thing. Um, if I can make a little more over here, um, you know, there's a chance I'll be laid off anyway, or I'm not getting a lot of training or maybe opportunities for advancement where I am. I think, though, it's important, again, to underscore there are really two worlds side by side. 
all the survey, and there's actually really good survey data done over decades on this issue, for those who are independent workers, contractors, gig workers, and, and really those who make their living that way as opposed to just you know, driving for Uber or Lyft on the side mm-hmm. like a side hustle and making a little extra money, but real kind of uh, you know, 1099 full-time independent contractors, depending on how you measure it, it's still pretty small, about maybe 5 to 15% of the U.S. labor force, but growing fast. Mm. And if you have a high-end job, that is, I'm an independent you know, data scientist doing project work, or, you know, I hang my own shingle somewhere and I'm a, you know, independent, uh, you know, business consultant at the high end, I can do great. And all the surveying shows people, they love exactly what you said. They yeah. love their freedom. They love the flexibility, right? I can cut out in the middle of the day and go see my kid's soccer game or whatever. But for those on the low end, temp workers, on-call contract workers, other independent workers, so-called contingent workers, um, those folks on the low end, it's very much the opposite. They don't, you know, they feel like it's just an unstable career. Uh, yeah. It's an unstable way to live. They worry about the fact that they have very few, if any, benefits, often very low pay, and very few worker protections. And so if you're at the low end of this gig economy, it's a whole different story. Where do you see this going in the future? Uh, do we see, do you, I mean, uh, what do we become fully, you know, independent of our of our organizations? Do we lose all loyalty? Where does this go? I don't think so. I mean, I think we are still very much a society of organizations, and you know, as far as my eye can see, we'll, we'll always be. Um, you know, I don't worry as much as others that robots are going to eat all of our jobs, and uh, that automation will completely you know, make it so we have no employment. Um, You know, I think those are far-fetched scenarios. But what I do see accelerating are all the trends we've seen accelerate over the last three or four decades. And that is that those people who are most vulnerable, again, at the low end of this barbell economy, um, they're going to continue to suffer more and more. And they are the most vulnerable to being displaced by automation. They are the most vulnerable to having to land in a kind of, you know, temp work, low-end gig job, barely make ends meet sort of existence, Mm. um, if they can find work at all. And these are people who, again, in a knowledge economy, um, they just don't have the education and skills um, necessary. And we as a country have really failed them. We've done a terrible job to prepare lots and lots of people um, for uh, the age in which we now live. And so when you look at the numbers, fewer than half of adults in America, it's only about 46%, have any kind of degree past high school. It's not a four-year degree, not a two-year degree, not even any kind of industry-recognized technical certificate. And those are the people who are really being left behind. And in turn, a lot of the social unrest and political unrest and uh, that we've seen, um, I think that is going to continue and, and maybe get worse. Absolutely. And yeah, and then, yeah, blowback. Um, and even, yeah, just, I could just see this time where where we become even more divided because those that think this is the greatest thing that's ever happened and those that feel like they've been 
totally abandoned and and uncared for, it's going to create even more of a a chasm between us. What advice would you give us as parents, Rick, that uh, if if I want to get my children ready um, to be able to handle this knowledge uh, world and this knowledge economy? It's to really get knowledge, to get skills. You know, it doesn't have to be a four-year degree by any means. I'm a big proponent of uh, the need for much, far more resources in career and technical education, particularly the skilled trades, right, construction, plumbing, auto repair. There are a lot of good jobs to yeah. be had there, um, kind of so-called middle-skilled jobs. And some of the actually the fastest-growing parts of the labor market are in those middle-skilled jobs. Um, and so um, uh, we need, you know, we need people to fill them. They're often employers complaining about skill gaps and they can't find enough folks. So I think, you know, the advice is one, you know, whatever, you know, if your kid's right for a four-year degree, even with college debt, it's still a by and large a good investment. You know, in the aggregate, the numbers clearly show that over over time, although it's becoming a bit more questionable. Yeah. Uh, but it's still, you know, getting some kind of formal education, a credential Having skills is hugely important. And the other thing is they need to have the expectation that they will be lifelong learners. You know, we can't just go to school once and think that it ends, that, you know, now learning all of our skills and knowledge are are becoming obsolete at an ever faster rate. And uh, they're going to be in school in one form or another. They should be their whole lives. That's great advice. Great advice. Rick Wartzman, thank you so much. The book, again, is The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. We've got to we've got to acquire as much knowledge as we can and expect that we'll be learning for the rest of our lives to keep those ideas, that information fresh and make us viable in this workplace. Appreciate uh, so much Rick's time. We'll continue the journey, folks, straight ahead more on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, as as we like to do, we, we love to follow uh, college sports and the impact that's going on, you know, nationwide with a lot of things, uh, head injuries in sports, mm-hmm. the money issues of college sports. And now we are going to talk about, I guess, FBI investigation into basketball, NCAA basketball. Yes, they announced, uh, the FBI announced several months ago or a month ago, however long it was, that they have this very long, years-long investigation into corruption in college basketball when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to mm. players, when it comes to how players get to the coach. Did this, There's did, intermediaries. this Louisville and Pat- Rick Pitino to lose his job? and They lost their, their national champion championship, champ? was yeah. disavowed by the NCAA, their wow. 2013 championship. So this story uh, out today says federal documents taken from a sports agency college basketball corruption case reveal potential widespread NCAA violations with those documents possibly exposing the sport's biggest players and schools. According to the report, the doc, this is from uh, Yahoo Sports. Yeah. They're uh, yeah. Pat, Pat Forty and Pete Thamel are leading the way on this. According to reports, the documents provide background on recruiting operation that could bring the NCAA rules violations to as many as 20 schools and more than two dozen players. What? So you got documents in question and were obtained by the discovery phase, federal investigation, and includes expense reports, balance sheets from former NBA agent Andy Miller, former AAU coach Christian Dawkins, and his agency, 
AMS Sports. Ooh. This is some of the machinery that allows high school kids to get to college to get to the pros. So, and so this is one or two sports agents that then have fed like twenty programs. So now these programs are are being among the schools included Duke. What? North Carolina, Texas, Kentucky, <gasps> Michigan State, USC, Alabama, with a link to providing— Boy, there's the final four and the sweet 16. It says, uh, the link to providing impermissible benefits and preferential treatment for players and families of players at those schools. The NCAA has a statement here where they're like, if uh, these allegations, if true, point to a systematic failure that must be fixed and fixed now, we're committed to fixing. So they're trying to, like, we're on board here. (laughs) Documents also link current Michigan State forward Miles Bridges. So he's on the team. Yeah. Alabama guard Colin Sexton, Duke forward Wendell Carter, all players that are currently on these teams receiving benefits for themselves or family members. Wow. The the balance sheet from the ASM sports agency shows that – a former North Carolina State guard, Dennis Smith, received $43,500, right? Smith was drafted in the first round last year by the Dallas Mavericks. Oh. Right? So, <laughs> Hold on. Who was, the, who, was the, who was the NCAA football star? Reggie uh, that, that won a Heisman, oh, and then they pulled that for, away. Yeah, you're right. He played for USC. He went on to play for uh, Didn't he get in trouble the for Saints. the same thing, receiving funds? They before. bought a house for him. See, isn't this the point that his family lived in a house in California, purchased by yeah. uh, a, a family friend who later became an agent, right? Oh, and so it's just stuff like that. So you got a balance sheet from them. Former Seton Hall star Isaiah Whitehead received twenty six thousand dollars. He uh, signed with his ASM group, but left to join a different group. He's now drafted and part of uh, the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, Markel Fultz, he's one of the top picks from last year's draft. Yeah, ten thousand dollars. Uh, he's drafted number one overall by the 76ers. So y- you have players receiving benefits, which is the problem right. is that there's all this money that's involved. The coaches make millions and millions of dollars. The the schools make a lot of money. The only people in this whole process not getting anything other than an education are the kids. Yeah. But a lot of these kids are, are simply there to one, two years so they can go to the NBA. Right. These, the, you know, these guys that get drafted, right? They're, they're big talents. That's who these people are dealing with. Who are the biggest talents going to the biggest schools so they can be competitive? And there's so much money involved. And how do you eliminate that? Maybe did the players get a piece of the action? Is that how you eliminate the corruption? I don't know. Those are some of the arguments well, that are being made. How on earth? I mean, these are big programs. They are. North the way, Carolina, Duke, the way Kentucky. The, the way the NCAA deals with this is they'll, you know, coaches, people, you know, you, you lose scholarships, oh. you don't play in the postseason. Didn't you, USC or you, no, UCLA basketball took a major hit because of stuff like this? I mean, right. okay, so is it time that we just start treating them all like professional athletes and get rid of scholarships and let's just start paying these people? On some level, the highest levels with the, the biggest talent, it seems like maybe they are. It's just it's all under happening. the it's all under the table. Well, then, the, yeah, but that would they'd have to restructure the entire now NCAA. the, the FBI is involved because there's like some tax evasion, there's some document oh, fraud wow. going on. This and is when you're going to get crazy. And now, now there's also this other thought: was, is this how it all how it's always operated? Hmm. But now the FBI is looking at it as illegal, right? Well, well, hold on, and is I guess it is it illegal? Um, is it an NCAA rules violation, yeah. or did they break a law? Now, if it's tax evasion, if they're you know faking documents, those sort of things, that could be fraud, 
So maybe that's what the FBI is pursuing. But it seems wow. like, yeah, so the, the, this, this could be very crazy. interesting because these programs are big. There's a lot of interest in them, and they could be. And you saw Rick Patino go down. And so what happens when all of a sudden Duke, hmm. North Carolina, Kentucky, really half the team, Tennessee, half these teams that would be in the Sweet 16 or the yeah. final or the whatever, Elite Eight or whatever. Boy, when all of them start taking a hit, crazy. That's why it's great to be at BYU, where we're not really, you know, in that level of competition yet. Yet. Moving forward. But Gon- yeah, we play Gonzaga, and they do. They're up there, too. Hey, fun stuff. Lots of learning. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, if you're into travel, uh, you might want to pay attention to this one. Apparently, according to travelandleisure.com, airlines could start charging different fares for different people. Hmm? It already depends on when you buy your ticket. So if you buy it really early, you you probably are paying a lower fare. If you're buying it closer to the time of the flight, you might be paying a higher fare. But apparently now uh, the airlines are, are starting to maybe rank passengers based on when they purchase their ticket, how many tickets they purchase a year, and you might start you might have a, an actual number placed on your head and then your ticket will be no longer just based on the chair you're sitting in, whether it has a seatbelt or not, and whether you can reach the air, or and maybe it's going to be more about your history, how many flights you're taking, do you travel business, and your fare will actually be based more on you as an individual, which is scary. Because what's the criteria going to be? If you weigh more? Yeah. Is it like, well, Uber, like the drivers will rate the passengers. Yeah. Right? And the, the passenger rates the driver. Is it, I wonder if it's that where they give you a – you have to keep your five-star rating or you, they're going to charge you more because you're a problem. You get a discount if you don't ask for any peanuts or soda. What if you're like a really yappy seatmate? Do you – does that – you know, does that help you? What if you – what if you're somebody that, hey, I'll take an inside seat anytime. I'm just the inside seat guy. Yeah. I'll be the middle guy. That's another discount. You, I'll sit next to somebody yeah. that will talk my ear off the whole time. Is it if you take your shoes off and rub your Ooh. bare feet? Ooh. Yeah. Should there be like a no shoe section? Yeah, like there used to be a smoking section. <laughs> if it's like sealed off from the rest of the plane, yeah, you can have yourself a It's called dynamic no pricing. Of course it is. And, uh, you know, they're trying to just – instead of it just being one set price for everybody, everybody brings something to the equation for your sales cycles and some people are easier to work with. And so it might be that, you know, they'd rather go after certain types of clients. By the way, according to the show The Good Place, you're not going to The Good Place if you are somebody that takes off your shoes on an airline or on an airplane. Automatic disqualifier for The the Good Place. Man. Got to keep your shoes. Good to know. (laughs) Good to know. See, this is the news you never get except right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. More fun straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday to you. You made it. Uh, Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. 
And we've uh, we've locked it up. We're ready for you and going to set up a great weekend for you as well. This uh, is the Matt Townsend Show, and t- today we've got also a, a wonderful interview about happiness. So we're going to show you how to be happy, not just because it's a weekend, but because life is good. And you may not always think that because all you hear is all the negative stories. But you know what? Life is good. And if, you, if you're able to see it and count your blessings then you might be able to feel it as well. So we, um, we're going to show you how to find happiness today. Also, of course, uh, we're going to have to get everybody ready for screen cleaning, which will be the next hour <laughs> of the show. And that's where we turn the reins over to Jeffrey Liam Simpson, and he just talks about screens. It's going to be fantastic. You know how the United States doesn't have as many Olympic gold medals as we'd like? Yeah, I was wondering about that. We may or may not be handing out some Olympic medals during wow. our show. Really? Yes. Is hey, When are the Oscars? Uh, they're in a couple of weeks, actually. Yeah. Uh, I usually don't care about that, but I'm thinking— A week and a half. It's. I was wondering. I thought it would be sooner than that. A week and a half. Hmm. Okay, so um, you're, you're going to be handing out some medals. Yes, which is that's good. Yes, that's there really may good. there may be one or two for Team USA. So stay tuned for that. Um, okay, now th- I'm gonna I'm gonna change the subject, and it's gonna sound really weird. But are you ready? Okay. The, would you? Uh, how do I say this without it turning really really weird? Would you die for your fellow workers? See, this is this is what's coming out of the shooting that took right. place in Florida. A school teacher wrote a, an article about, that was really about her questioning, "Why do I have to have a job where I have to be willing to die for people?" Well, She's a school teacher, yeah. And now it's like, you know what? School I don't really teachers need to kind of ask that question. I, I, it's not that I don't view you as a coworker. I would just think. That would be the right thing to do to not only try to save as many people yeah. as you could, but to try to stop that person. So I, I, it's just uh, the value of a person. You would, I, don't you think? I think everybody, yes. to some degree, would try to to help others. Yeah, I am very grateful that we're behind bulletproof glass. Oh, of course, that's always been. yeah. That's, but I mean, that you, makes it a little easier. Not that you should criticize people because of how they act in the moment, because you no. you always think you'll act one way in the moment, no. and then it, it comes and you're totally taken right. You're taken aback. Yeah. So you never know. And that is that does get to some interesting news that's coming out today about the shooting, because everybody right after the shooting, everybody jumped on guns. You got a gun control. The FBI got beat up because uh, background checks hadn't been completed on this guy, but he had been cited and investigated was being investigated. Now we're finding out apparently that um, an officer that was on campus that was at the scene showed up and didn't actually enter the building to go in and stop the gunman in Florida. And instead, there's video of him standing outside for four minutes as the shooting was going on inside. See, I think it's different if you're just like a bystander or somebody who happens to be there and you act. That's that's good and admirable. Yeah. But oh, if yeah. it's, it's your job and you're being paid for it, it's a different conversation. But can you imagine? I, I guess that's who picks the job to be a police officer are the ones that would run into a building. Like, yeah. Who in their right mind would run into 9-11 like the firefighters did, except the firefighters, that that's what they do. But And police officers that show up. So now they're finding out that one of the police officers 
um, that was supposed to go in and help people didn't go in and help people. In fact, the police chief that gained notoriety being on the CNN uh, uh, CNN what do they call that talk? Wow, what was it? The big anyway, the big meeting with CNN. Oh, the town hall. The town Sorry. hall. Town hall. I was thinking like talk hall. Uh, the town hall. That officer said what this guy's job was to was to go inside. Go find the dude, kill the dude. That was his job. And he Even didn't do his job. Even if it means that you're going to go down. That's what you do. And so instead he stayed outside for four minutes. The, the gunman was inside shooting and firing and killing people. Meanwhile, we hear heroic story of teachers that are giving their lives. And really now teachers are asking the question, am I willing to die for my students? And is that a question they should have to even be asking? But then I started thinking all of us could be in a situation where – you know, yeah, it you doesn't have to, to you be. You bring up a great point. It doesn't have to be at your job. It could be at the mall. Oh, I think it's yeah. it's not. I view these people as students. I, this is not my job. It's the these are other human beings. And what is the value of a human being? And they need help. And when yeah. people need help, that's why we always have the hero stories on the show as well. But again, we got to be careful not to no. criticize people that don't act the way that we all think they should in that well, moment. Well, and think about it. Everybody should be protecting themselves as well, right? I mean, you you hear these – there's just some special people that run back into places like this that aren't paid to do it, but they do it. Uh, also, police are also getting um, – p- police that have been investigating the shooter – now is also they're, – they're, they're, they're starting to get into some trouble because they apparently didn't investigate him. They knew information. They had details and data on them, and they didn't act on it. So two other investigators now that were uh, connected to this shooting have now been um, put on leave while they're trying to investigate how it went so wrong. How could you have information about a shooter like this and it's not being acted on? Meanwhile, though, we beat up the FBI. The FBI took a lot of hits um, and maybe need necessary hits because hopefully they're changing systems. But it sounds like the sheriff's departments need to change systems. Sounds like we can still do a lot more on guns. Right. And we need to deal with mental health issues. So uh, it's a complex issue as we keep bringing up on the show. But I, I like that we're, we're learning stuff. That's why, too, it's probably really important to slow down our judgment. Um, and instead gather as much information as we can. Speaking of gathering information, let's get to the information gather, uh, gatherer, Inspector Clouseau himself, Terry <laughs> wow. South. Student-led organizers of the uh, gun control rally in Washington, D.C. next month told officials they expect to have as many as 500,000 people in attendance. The organizers of the March for Our Lives event filed a permit application this week with the National Park Service, but an exact location is yet to be determined. The effort was to la- was launched last week after the gunman uh, yeah. killed the 17 people at the high school in Florida. According to the application, the event scheduled for March 24th will feature 14 jumbotrons, 2,000 chairs. The GoFundMe account for this uh, March for Our Lives raised over $2 million since the wow. 18th. What? So, yeah. No. So this isn't the kids putting this together. This no. is now an official. It started with the kids, and then now there's people helping. You know what? Again, I almost don't care as long as we start making changes in the five areas we need to make changes. Yes. Wherever it comes from, let's just make changes. President Trump on Thursday said he's thinking of pulling immigration and customs enforcement out of California in retaliation for the state's lack of support on 
his on the uh, his position on sanctuary cities and for the state being no help in targeting the MS-13 gang. I mean, frankly, if I want to pull out our people out of California, you would have a crime mess like you've never seen in California, he said. <laughs> They're doing a lousy management job. They have the highest taxes in the nation, and they don't know what's happening out there. He also said that if he took ICE forces out of California in two months, they'd be begging for us to come back, and they, they would be begging. And you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking about doing it. Wow. Now, uh, okay. It, it, it sounds like that was kind of an impromptu ramble. Okay. I mean, you know what I mean? It just kind of... Well, sure. It kind of... Even you reading it, it sounded like... It's just the president, when he talks, he, but he just he's talking off the top of his head. It's an interesting idea because sanctuary cities. Hmm. Many don't understand that. Some think it's just wrong. Some see it's a necessary thing that we do. We protect people so that they can call 911 without fear of yes. being arrested they're because being, there's a fire. Sanctuary cities are being painted as if they're harboring criminals. Right. And they're not. If someone breaks a law, there's a crime committed, they're taken care of. They're just not arresting everyone that is illegal. Yeah. Right. Because if they're not doing anything wrong other than they're illegal, which if you look in the criminal code, it's a misdemeanor. It's right. like It's like a jaywalking fine. Yeah. Right. But we polarize it and it's like, you know, all illegals are horrible, evil, bad people. But it's yeah, it's not the case. I mean, Melania Trump's parents, I guess they were here legally. Yeah. Through, as Trump calls it, chain migration. Which he's trying to get rid of. He's trying to get rid of. Maybe that was his way subtly of getting rid of the in Is that what it is? Is this an in-law situation? Yeah, it's an in-law situation. Okay. okay. It's, but they're already through the process. Yeah, now they are. Wow. Maybe he's trying to fast track it. He wasn't president it. back then. Okay. Okay. Oh, makes sense. Yeah. Shed more light on the, on the concept there. Thanks. <laughs> um, a study published Tuesday in the Journal of American Medicine, I guess, followed 609, oh, 609 overweight adults for a year and found that counting calories and watching portion sizes to lose weight were ineffective for weight loss. Instead, yes! Instead, people who slashed sugar, refined grains, and uh, highly processed foods in favor of whole foods like fruits and vegetables lost more weight than those who calculated every meal's calories. So if you ate quality food rather than just cut the amount of bad food. So it's really less about the calorie counting and more just about the food you're eating. Mm. Eat whole healthy food. Yeah. Less sugar and processed foods. Which we have Karen Mangum come on, and that's yeah. kind of what she talks about. Yeah, pretty much every health expert says that. What's but- more, researchers found that trying to personalize diets to genetics or how their individual insulin responds to carbohydrates was ineffective, leading the team to question a spate of recent studies that suggest some people are more able to lose weight than others simply because they're genetically able to do so. Yeah. It goes on uh, to advise that health agencies like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have long stood by keeping food diaries and meticulous tracking of each food uh, caloric output. output. In short, eat your fruits and vegetables and a lot of them. So eat better is what they're saying. Well, it doesn't seem like this would be new news, really. No, but it's debunking... They constantly the whole diet idea. The debunking these diet trends that come up yeah. that are based on these concepts that they're saying really aren't showing any sure. long-term benefit. You may so, lose some weight, but you gain it back. So what do you say about the diet bet that I'm doing? Because part of my focus you is to feeding another habit. Is to seriously cut down on carbohydrates and focus more on eating the fruits and the vegetables. I think for you, the reason and it does work. 
right? I mean, but I think you're, it's a motivational thing for you. Yeah. More than, because they don't tell you how to diet, right? Nope. They just nope. tell you, they, they, you just like to gamble. You like to gamble. <laughs> That's my concern. But it, it, I mean, it, the funny thing is, if you weren't LDS, you'd probably be a gambler. You'd probably be a professional gambler. No, right. come on. Yeah, I you, bet you'd you would. push that mortgage across to the car dealer, and it'd be over. Mm-hmm. How that would work? No. So now you just gamble with your health, <laughs> but it works. It works. It's motivation. Finally, a village in Illinois has started to get some love from uh, fans of Black Panther. Announced the same way as the fictional African nation in the movie Wakanda. The backdrop of the movie there. So Wakanda, Illinois, has already received a request for vibranium, the fictional metal from vibranium? the Vibranium? Yeah. It's stronger than any other. Uh, Elise uh, Homola, executive assistant to the village administrator and mayor, told the uh, Hollywood Reporter that since the uh, movie opened last week, she has received communications from fans via uh, email and calls. She says, at first I was like, There's, is there a full moon out? What's going on? What's Why going are these on? people calling me? Sounds weird. Because uh, she knew that the movie was out but didn't know what it was about. Yeah. So when people are calling up with like key you know, point or plot points and using that in conversation, she has no idea what they're talking about. Have you seen the movie yet? I have. Um, Wakanda is a village in Lake County, Illinois. With a population around 13,758, according to the Census Bureau. Mm. Wow. In the superhero film, Wakanda is a fictional East African nation with vast advanced technologies hidden from the rest of the world and the home to their king and protector, Black Panther. So, a little bit different. Yeah, it sounds a little bit different. Admittedly, not much of a superhero buff. Uh, Homola says she was taken back by the request for vibranium and other unusual phone calls. Someone called and asked how we pronounce the village name. And when I told him... That they began yelling Wakanda forever, which is something from the movie. Okay, and she's like, which I'm guessing she says is from the movie. Uh, the Wakanda High School principal Dan Klett told the Hollywood Reporter that the school's mascot would remain the bulldog, despite an inquiry over it being changed to possibly uh, a Black Panther. Why wouldn't you? Which maybe they should think about branding for like a week, right? Maybe yeah. get some extra money, pay for some school books, but no one thought about this going forward. Oh, come on! Right, Wakanda. Now, now the movie itself has made five hundred million. In nine days. Sheesh. Okay, so just as a novice and one without getting all like geeky on yes. me. Yes. Okay. What makes Black Panther uh-huh. such an impressive movie? Well, I, honestly, a lot of the excitement around it is kind of lost on me because it just kind of feels like another Marvel movie. Or is it because it's a black superhero? That is a huge part of persona, it. because and it's out of the story. Wakanda is out of an African tribe, and you, you have an African nation yeah. in the story. It's an African nation that's never been colonized, uh. never been corrupted by any European forces. So this is what possibly an African nation would develop into when you got like like politically and like oh, family cool, dynamics yeah. and stuff. So there's that sort of aspect to it that is very interesting when you're watching the movie. Now. For the movie itself, it's interesting because pretty much all the other Marvel movies will have references to other Marvel right. movies connecting this whole universe together. There's really no well, connections. Well, you can't because they're from a, a right an they've African been, city. They've been isolated. Yes. There's no connections outside of What's this. What's his superpower? You'd have to watch the movie. Mm. You told me not to get nerdy about it. He has a suit. But is it a suit or no, is it, was him. he bit by a panther? No. He, <laughs> and he's got It was a mutated saliva. panther. <laughs> you don't want me to get nerdy. You told me. I know, but I, can, you, can you just give me the powers 
of that make him special so I can see if I want to watch that. He is a king. He's a king. Okay. Did you see Civil War when he was in there? Captain America Civil War? He's I in don't that remember. Movie. I saw. I saw. Yeah, probably. He's jumping around. He okay. Yeah, I climbing saw around that in a black suit. He's very agile. He's got some interesting weapons that they were able to craft out of this vibranium type stuff. He's really smart. Why is it that every time you say vibranium, <laughs> yeah. I laugh? Because that's what. Because ca- it, it sounds like a made up word. <laughs> vibranium. It's a made up word because it's all fiction, right? So <laughs> just buy into it. It's fun. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about the movie is that the villain yeah. is better than most of the other vill- villains that are in these movies because he's got a moral dilemma. Mm. The villain has a moral dilemma. Now, the movies that they have made that mm. have lasting power with me are the ones where there is some moral choice that both seem plausible. Like, mm. like uh, Wonder Woman not wanting to fight... A war, but having to fight a war to stop a Nazi. There you go. The Dark Knight, Batman having to choose to do the wrong thing for the right reasons. There you go. Okay. Captain America, uh, Winter Soldier was talking about, like, at what point do we give up our personal agency, personal freedoms for safety? Mm-hmm. Where's the limit, right? Boy, talk, we're talking about that right, right now here in River City. In uh, Captain America's <laughs> Civil War, the government wanted all the heroes to register with the government. Captain America's like, I fought a war against a guy who did that. Interesting. So what's the moral, what's good for yes. the, the better good versus personal good? Those sort of dilemmas are very interesting to see play out. And then they play with that. Who? argument back and forth and there's that sort of argument in black panther okay so help me with this one just yes. because uh, i'm talking for the lay the lay thinker out there that yeah. that actually has a life uh-huh, uh-huh. um what who do the, who does black panther hang with the marvel or the dc people marvel okay and that's like wonder that's uh not iron wonder, man that's captain iron america man. thor yeah. Yeah. okay that those guys yeah. so is is black panther like going to become the leader of that group or is that always going to be don't know he it's has be captain america. captain america he has been in leadership positions before right with mm-hmm. the way they're building this the original characters you have captain america thor iron man those actors don't have contracts going forward oh wow that's going to get the next, there's a movie them. coming out in may avengers another avengers movie in may they don't have contracts after that. Well, there, there are two parts of that film, right? There are. Yeah. So then the question is, who's in the next one? What? How do they form this team going forward? Do they have new yes. members? Black Panther will be part of that because it's brand new. <gasps> okay. In the comics, he takes leadership positions because he's the king of a highly technically advanced nation that that goes That's from cool. being an isolationist type situation to being open to the world. That's cool. And so he's kind of in this he actually joins a group called now, the Illuminati. I know we don't have time to cover it right now, but I want you to get ready to help me understand how the teenage mutant ninja turtles fit into all of this. They don't. Not yet. Not yet is the keyword here. Please so, tell me they will never fit into. We've this. had movies. Now wait how a about minute. In sync is in sync a part NSYNC of this. In sync is not part of this. How many post-credit scenes are we getting in this film? Two. Only two? We shell out there's one twelve about, bucks, and there's one midway through, and one at the very end. What, what does mm. that mean? What's a post? They link to the rest of the movies. You have to after the movie is over, you have to wait around for oh, yeah. two other scenes that happen during and after the credits. And they've done this in every Marvel movie. This Didn't, is the 18th movie. How Didn't come one I didn't of them, know this? One of them had like five of them. Yeah. Have, have I been missing these? 
Yes, you and I just leave early. You and all these other people, the, the credits start. They all stand up and leave. I'm looking around. There's 18 movies. They do this every time. There's at least oh, one. Oh boy, I sh- it's I'm, frustrating. I'm you you actually want to stand up and yell, "There's more! Where you go?" And they just walk out the door. Yeah, but then you're the one that we have to escort out. Yeah, then I'm the raving. The guy lunatic, with the yeah. little flashlight has to say, "Sir, you need to come with me." Exactly. My wife just goes, "Shh, just wait, just, just wait. Relax. Well, play with your phone. Play with relax. your phone." Well, so great. So uh, Black Panther may be the thing that makes you happy, but if not, we're going to be talking about what could bring you uh, more happiness. And, and, and is it about being smart? We'll find out. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Everyone knows success and happiness are linked, right? The more successful uh, you are in your career, the happier you are, right? Do you believe that? Actually, the idea of career success at any cost is resulting in more and more people being dissatisfied with their life. In his book, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy?, University of Texas business professor Dr. Raj Raghunathan talks about the disconnect from the two and how to shorten the gap and close that gap. I had a chance to speak with him not long ago. I began the interview by asking, why do people think that money equals happiness? It's not as if the, uh, there is no relationship between money and happiness. Uh, there is a positive relationship, but the relationship is much, much smaller than most people expect it to be. Um, And yes, it is true that uh, we have known this for some time, but I think one of the big reasons why we continue to think that money is going to bring us happiness is because that's what we experience in the short term. You know, imagine that you're earning $100,000 a year and you get a big bump, you get like $20,000 extra. When you hear that news, you actually feel very happy Hmm. and you mispredict how long it's going to last. That's the problem. You think that it's going to last forever. It turns out that it maybe lasts for two months, at most maybe three months, four months. And then you get adapted to that new level of wealth. And it is true that when your basic necessities are not met, you're struggling for food, clothing, shelter, more money can help. So there is a positive relationship between money and happiness before that limit of about $75,000 in the U.S. for a household. But beyond it, it turns out it doesn't really matter much. That's an interesting point, huh? that um, we, we actually get used to things that happen to us fairly quickly. So... Uh, the effect doesn't seem to last as long. Is that true with negative things? So if something, if I if I lost twenty percent, would I adapt to that pretty quickly as well, or would I constantly be mad about that? Yeah. So um, the uh, n- negative effect of uh, something that's a loss uh, tends to be more intense in the short term. So, for example, you would feel less positive or less pleasure from gaining uh, a 20% hike in your salary than you would feel pain from a 20% reduction in salary. But you're going to adapt to that as well. There was actually a new paper that was interesting. It it kind of pointed to some individual differences on tendencies to adapt. It turns out that the more conscientious you are, um, this is a personality trait, uh, the more you're going to get affected by these increases and reductions in salary. But by and large, people adapt to both positive and negative things. Interesting stuff. And so in your book, um, we might be, I guess, it seems like the premise of the book is we, we might be, mis, uh, be misinformed or, or overestimating the value of, of our, our progress at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, as in that we expect it to bring a lot of happiness. but it Yeah, doesn't. and it doesn't do it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not just wealth. Uh, you pointed to wealth, but uh, other kinds of things as well, like fame, for example. We get used to that. We might get used to status. Uh, we might used to get. Uh, we might get used to the amount of control that we have, and so on. So, it turns out that all of these, what might we call extrinsic yardsticks of success. You know, these are the yardsticks that conventionally uh, we use to assess whether somebody's arrived. Right. I mean, if mm-hmm. somebody's like successful, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, he must be making a lot of money, or he must be owning a big home, or he must be high uh, up in his organization, and so on. Um, it turns out that we get used to all of these extrinsic yardsticks relatively quickly, um, and therefore they stop uh, giving you sustained levels of happiness. They might boost your happiness levels in the short run, but in the long run. Now, why, Raj, why did you end up studying this? You're a business professor. <laughs> Not a psychologist, and you know, there's there seems to be a lot of books coming out today uh, in kind of I guess in the happiness category. Um, but you you're you're a you know you're an aggressive uh, data oriented business professor. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How, how did you start studying this? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, the short answer to that is that I've always been interested in happiness for a very long time, and I just ended up being in the business world for a variety of reasons. Uh, but uh, the more kind of, you know, the, the uh, you might call it a milestone change in my life that prompted me to start teaching a class on happiness and researching it a little more uh, intensely was um, something that happened in 2006 and 2007 when I took a bunch of MBAs from the Macomb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin, which is where I teach, to India, uh, on a business trip, you know, to get to, uh, get them um, familiar with the Indian way of doing business and so on. And I met a lot of my batchmates from 15 years back. Hmm. I have an MBA from India, and it had been 15 years since we had graduated. And I met a lot of my batchmates, and I noticed this very interesting uh, phenomenon, which is a lack of, seeming lack of correlation between career success and what I call life success. You know, how happy you are, how fulfilled you are, how meaningful your life seems to be. And I, I was also going through a lean patch myself. You know, I achieved quite a bit. On paper, it looked like, you know, I might be considered a very successful guy. I had a PhD from a big, uh, you know, great uni- university, NYU. I was a professor at a top-ranked school and so on. But yet, if I looked within, I felt a sense of emptiness. I felt a sense of, is this all there is to it? You know, I didn't feel that I was waking up every day with a great deal of enthusiasm to go to work and, you know, feeling really pumped and energized and joyous. Uh, You know, so another way to look at it is I was and my friends were in the top 1% in terms of material possessions and access to resources. Uh, But I don't think we we were anywhere near the top 1% in terms of how Hmm. meaningful, fulfilling and happy we were. And I thought that this was kind of interesting and at the same time somewhat disturbing and unfortunate uh, paradox, if you will. And I, I, so I thought, okay, you know, at a university, what is my primary job? You know, I asked myself this question, and the answer came to me that it was to give these students the skill sets and tools required to lead a fulfilling, meaningful life and uh, enable other people to do the same. And uh, if I were, was honest with myself, all the courses that I was teaching, all the stuff that I was doing, I felt that weren't really geared towards fulfilling that objective. Yeah. And so I ended up asking the students, would you guys be interested in a course on this fundamental and important question, one of life's big questions, what are the determinants of a happy and fulfilling life? And all of them said yes. So I came back home to Austin and I put together a syllabus. And, you know, it's really fortunate and, and really, you know, uh, hats off to, to the school and the dean for approving a course like this, a very unusual course, yeah. as you pointed out. But, you know, it's gone from strength to strength. Uh, over the years, I've had the waiting list only increase. And uh, then a Coursera course on the topic came up, and now it has 
over 125,000 students from everywhere in the world, every literally every country in the world. And it was rated the top um, um, MOOC. It's called Massive yeah, Open MOOC. Online Course. Yeah. yeah so it's, and, is um, it really? It's the top rated MOOC? Of 2015, according to Holy this cool. uh, third party called Class Central. So these, this hunger for ho- happiness is not, yeah. not isolated. You know, it's not only among the MBAs or the smart and the successful. Everybody is very interested in the topic. I love that story. And the, I mean, again, uh, that was your cohort from your graduate programs. Um, and, and here you are at University of Texas. You don't want these guys to get together or gals to get together in a few years, 15 years from now feeling underwhelmed and hungry for some purpose. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yeah. So that was the motivation behind it is to uh, at least, you know, sow a seed of uh, this kind of thinking in their head so that when they arrive at that point in the mid-40s or whatever and look back and ask themselves, you know, is this all there is to it? They at least remember that, you know what, I had a course on this topic and there was a bunch of resources that the course pointed to. Let me look them up again. You yeah. know? So that's the intent. Yeah. Incredible. Um, and talk to us about um, one of the things I know you mention a lot is the mental chatter. And right. help me understand that. And, and does, I guess is that just us being overwhelmed by these in, these extrinsic factors? What what is mental chatter? Yeah. So mental chatter is uh, the kind of voice in the back of your head, and uh, most of us are familiar with that voice. It's a voice that's going in the background, commenting on how we are doing something. You know, it might say things like Raj, you know, you're really doing well now, or Raj, you really kind of blew it, and so on. And this is the judgmental voice, the criticizing voice. It's also the voice that kind of taps into our emotional tenor for the day or for the moment. Um, and uh, that's quite different from this mental chatter is quite different from what we consciously tend to think about. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, people who do research in this area call um, uh, the part of the brain that is associated with mental chatter the default mode network or a DMN. This is the part of the brain that's producing... Uh, thoughts uh, kind of spontaneously by default. And uh, that mental chatter, uh, what my colleagues and I discovered, uh, gives you a very good insight into uh, how happy you are, how meaningful and fulfilling you find life to be. And most of the time, we don't really pay that much attention to the mental chatter. It's kind of going on in the background, almost on the edge of consciousness and what we're conscious of and what we're not conscious of. Um, And the task in this exercise, the mental chatter exercise, is to actually try and tune in to that mental chatter. Hmm. And uh, one of the best ways to tune into it is to actually try and not think. You know, just kind of sit there and then just observe whatever is going on without trying to think. And then all this mental chatter will bubble up and you can pay attention to it. And uh, the task in the exercise is to actually write it down. And when we did that, what happened is we found that, first of all, most people's mental chatter is more negative than positive. And we looked mostly at people who were pretty successful. You know, being from a business school, we looked at the students, the MBA students, the undergrads. We also looked at a lot of people who worked in big firms like, you know, Whole Foods and uh, some other firms like that. Uh, and we found that, first of all, most of people's mental chatter is quite negative. And the second thing that we found, which is actually more interesting to me, um, is that um, the mental chatter seemed to emerge from three basic buckets or three categories. Uh, One of the categories had to do with um, how superior I feel to other people or how inferior I feel to other people. And it seems like a lot of our thoughts are about how do we stack up compared to other people. And most of the time, we tend to think that we're not doing as well as we would hope. Even if we are doing quite well and we are better than other people, we want to be even more superior to them. Hmm. Um, So that's the 
reason for the negativity in that context. Uh, then the second bucket is uh, about love and relationships. You know, I, I'm already growing old. I don't have a partner. You know, I don't have a, a, ch a child. You know, I'm never going to ever, you know, settle down in terms of my personal life and so on. So that's the second big category. And the third big category has to do with control, has to do with how frenetic your life is, how out of control your life is, how many more list things you have on your, you know, list of things to do than you can ever complete, and uh, how life seems so short, and uh, you're out of time and out of breath, and uh, that category of uh, thoughts. So uh, that gives us insights into why we aren't feeling as happy and fulfilled as we could or should be, despite our achievements, is because we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people in terms of superiority. We aren't satisfied with our relationships, and we have just taken on much, much more. Uh, we have bitten off more than we can chew. Hmm. We've taken on more on our plate than we can handle. And the, these three insights then uh, give you kind of a, a kind of at least a platform for understanding. Okay, how can you now steer the ship in the right direction? How can you correct for this sort of mistakes that you've made uh, that have contributed to your life being unhappy? Uh, and that's that's the idea. Wow, and that seems like a powerful way too to just identify when you are in your chatter. Is the mm -hmm. minute the minute you're comparing yourself in you know hierarchy superiority in or you know bemoaning your relationships or uh, worried about lack of control, you're probably mm -hmm. chattering. Teach us um, more about some of the principles that that uh, need to take place for us to find happiness amidst all of the. You know, the stress of work and the need to deliver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, one way to kind of rephrase what you just asked, Matt, is to ask this question. So what are the determinants of a happy and fulfilling life? And if you look at that question and if you look at the major themes that emerge from uh, the 15, 20 years of research that's gone into it, it seems like five things are very important. The very first thing is that your basic necessities have to be met. You can't be struggling for your next meal and yet be happy, right? Just to get out of unhappiness and into a state of neutrality. In fact, even to entertain this question, what does it take to lead a happy life? You need to have your basic necessities met. Now, I'm going to assume that many of your listeners are past that stage, yeah. right? Uh, that they have enough money to, to make ends meet and they live in a relatively warm house and, and you know, the creature comforts are taken care of. Beyond it, three things seem to emerge. One is a need for mastery, being really good at doing something. The second is a need for belonging, um, to have at least one really intimate relationship. And the third is a need for autonomy, to feel that you're not under somebody else's power, that you're not a puppet in somebody else's hands. So these three needs, you know, I call them MBA, mastery, belonging, autonomy. Huh. I am from a business school. Of course, it's all yeah. going to be an It's MBA, always right? about the MBA, isn't it, Raj? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but here the MBA is slightly different, right? I mean, it's not a master's in business administration. It's mastery, belonging, and autonomy. Now, if you understand this, you can also kind of understand why it is that we have these three categories of mental chatter. We have mental chatter about superiority because we want to be a master of something that we do. And one of the kind of ways that um, we can gauge whether we are progressing towards mastery is by comparing ourselves to other people and assessing whether we're doing better than other people. If we are, then we feel that, yeah, we must be progressing towards mastery because we are better at running the 100 meters race uh, compared to, let's say, you know, our neighbor or Usain Bolt, right? I mean, he's the best right. in the world. Um, so he's a master at that, right? Uh, because he's the best. Um, uh, likewise, belonging, you know, the reason why a lot of our mental chatter is about intimacy and relationships is because we want this belonging and therefore, we kind of constantly worry about whether other people love us enough, 
whether we have we get enough attention from other people, whether we have enough Facebook likes and so on and so forth. And likewise, uh, the reason why we worry a lot about whether our life is in, under control is because we have this desire for autonomy. We want to be free. We want to not be obligated or pressured by life to do things that we don't want to do. Um, that's why we worry a lot about um, biting off more than we can chew and life being out of control. Hmm. Now, if you understand this, and then uh, you can ask yourself this question. So we have all these needs, uh, MBA, and we can't be happy unless we have those things, but am I approaching it the right way? So is there another way to uh, achieve mastery or, or progress towards mastery that does not involve social comparisons? And it turns out there is. That's a more productive way, not just to be happy, but actually even to be successful in the long run. In a way, it's kind of a best-kept secret. Uh, and that way is to follow your passion and to follow what um, this researcher, Mihai Sheikhs and Mihai, calls flow states. I love flow it. Flow states are those yeah. states in which you get so absorbed in an activity that you completely lose track of time. You lose track of, um, you know, you merge with the activity and you're no longer self-conscious about how you're doing. And the mental chatter actually stops because you're completely into the activity, right? Uh, and it turns out most of us at one point or the other have experienced flow. I'm sure you get into flow in doing your job as yeah. a viewer, right? Um, yeah. As a radio talk host. And likewise, everybody's got some domain in which they find flow. Uh, the unfortunate thing is we get distracted from it because, you know, other people tell us that, you know, that's not a worthy pursuit. You know, you can't be making mannequins for a living, even if you get into flow. I mean, that's not going to give you money. Right. You better become... Uh, an investment banker or a consultant or a movie producer or whatever, you know. So we get distracted away from our flow-inducing activities to other things. But pursuing flow not just makes us happy, but is also really the only reliable means of mastery. Pursuing superiority over other people might in the short run um, motivate you to uh, start a task and uh, put in a lot of effort into that task, but in the long run it's actually going to burn you out and you're not going to end up being a master of that domain uh, yeah. as much as you're likely to be if you pursue your flow. Raj, as, you, as you're kind of wrapping it up, you started to talking about five determinants, one of which was basic necessities. Mm-hmm. Um, what, was, what were the other ones? Yeah, so the other three are MBA, Mastery, Belonging, okay. Autonomy. That's three the of the – okay. One, yeah, what's the last yeah, one? So, so basic necessities and then MBA. Uh, the very last one is actually perhaps the most important one, which is the attitude you bring to the pursuit of MBA and life in general. You know, And I characterize this attitude as either coming in the form of what I call an abundance mindset. Hmm. That is that you feel that, you know, I have enough. My life is generally good. I'm taken care of. Um, or a scarcity mindset, which is that I don't have enough. Life is a zero-sum game, and my win is going to come at somebody else's loss, and I better hold and grab. Um, and so depending on the, which mindset you adopt, it makes a big difference to how you pursue M, B, and A. If you're approaching those three goals from the abundance mindset, you're going to be willing to pursue mastery through enjoyment and flow and what you like to do. You're going to be willing to pursue belonging through needing to love because you feel that your life is already abundant. You're going to be willing to take internal control. If you approach them through the scarcity mindset, you're going to approach mastery through wanting to beat other people, wanting to be superior to them. You're going to approach belonging through wanting to be loved. And you're going to approach autonomy through resting control over other people and over outcomes. Mm. You're going to be desperate for control. Raj, in in about one minute, tell me if there's one thing – I always call it the one thing – the one thing that the Mm -hmm. the listener can do today, right now, that would have the Mm -hmm. biggest impact other than, of course, buying your book. um, (laughs) What is the one thing that makes the biggest difference right now to get started on? 
Okay. Yeah. So the one thing that I would say is that if you can somehow get into the habit of taking just a couple of minutes every night before you go to bed to note three good things that happened to you that day. Um, just little good things, you know. It might be things like, you know what, I forgot to rain my plants, uh, water my plants today, but it was raining, and therefore I got some free water, right? Or a stranger smiled at me. Um, it can be little good things like that, not necessarily that you got a big raise or, you know, uh, you won the lottery. Um, if you can just make a note of small, three small good things that happen every day, it's going to steer you in the direction of abundance. Um, so because I really like you and your listeners, uh, I'm also going to give you a bonus one. Sweet. Yeah, I? yeah please. That's another thing. Yeah. yeah, if you can just make sure that you lead a life in which you maintain a healthy lifestyle, you know, eat well, sleep at least seven hours a day, and move a little bit more uh, if you're sedentary, uh, if you have a sedentary job, um, move a little bit more than you uh, normally would. You know, if you just, you know, there's a really great book called Eat, Move, Sleep by yeah. Tom Rath. Yeah. Um, so if you just do a little bit of each of these and you maintain a healthy lifestyle, you're going to see that your life kind of is a little more enjoyable from the inside out. You feel like each of your cells is, is a little more joyous and healthy and bubbling with energy. And uh, that combined with the three good things is going to almost certainly put you on the right path. And oh. if it doesn't, write to me. I'll give you a free copy of my book. There you go. I think it'll work. I think it'll work. Dr. Raj Ragunathan, thank you again so much for your great work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Matt. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. You too. And honored to... Uh, Honored to learn from you. Dr. Raj Ragunathan, again, uh, remember, you, you can find him if you go to happysmarts.com. His book, If, you are smart, if You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? Um, and again, go look up uh, his University of Texas um, online MOOC. Uh, it's the number one MOOC in 2015. Pretty cool stuff. And what a great uh, spirit that Raj brings to his work. Honestly, how good would it feel to just... To not have to be so comparative, to not have to constantly be wondering where you are in your mastery, your superiority, and your love, and your relationships, and your ability to control. That's where the peace comes from, when you can just be centered. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, continue the discussion. In just a few seconds, stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Um, you know, it's it's important as a, as a couple, as a partnership, to find some time with each other. And so I've decided I'm going to put together some time savers. Ways that you, as a couple, could actually find more time to be together. Again, you're only given so much time anyway, right? So many minutes a day, so much time. And if you're not able to find time for each other, it might be simply because you're misinterpreting or misunderstanding what time you could be using. Uh, One of my first rules, and for years I used to teach, you know, maybe a great tool is divide and conquer. You go one way, you take the kids one way, have your wife go another way. We would divide up, but then we'd be able to quickly get through all of our tasks and then spend time together at the end of the day. Well, I've decided that was some bad advice, and I'm sorry I ever thought of it. Because what I have now come to understand is 
Maybe what we ought to do is instead of dividing and conquering, what if we tried to unite and conquer? If our goal is to have time with each other, then let's quit Let's quit dividing in order to then eventually sometime down the road or later in the day be able to have time together. Why don't we actually spend more time today going and doing our doing our chores, doing our activities, doing our our to-do list together? What if we could actually go run errands together as a couple and maybe go grocery shopping and either do it together side by side or actually um, break off and have one of us run and get you know, the bread and one go get the milk and we meet back and, but let's do it together. And then we get in the car and we can talk and we use the time together throughout the day. Sure. It might take you a little bit more time, but you would also finally have the time together instead of just hoping that uh, somehow you're going to find time at the end of a day. Another little uh, tool I might suggest is that you use some productivity apps um, my wife now is my – she's my executive assistant. She's basically my office manager, in fact. And uh, ever since she's been working for me, it's been the greatest thing ever. It's been so much better for our relationship. We're on the same page. She, we now are using the same apps with each other. And what I mean by that is she uses Google Calendar. I use Google Calendar. We can combine our lists. We can actually get our children's calendars uh, and our teenagers to put their calendars together, and they become part of our calendar. We have shared to-do lists. We have shared note pages. We have shared camera streams. So every picture she takes, I can see it. I can get access to it. We have, uh, you know, we can access each other's Amazon wish list if we want. There's just a lot of great technology out there that we can use to partner better and and to be together. So use the apps that you've got out there and, and, and take advantage of those. Another simple rule I use is to watch out for your transition times, I call them. Transition time are those moments between one activity and another. When you arrive home from work, let's say, that is what I call a transition moment. And there is time and something magical in that moment that you could leverage in your marriage. Um, After dinner, before we start cleaning up the dinner, there is a magical moment there of transition where if you would just hang on five or 10 more minutes, you might be able to have a great conversation there. When you go to bed, uh, that's a transition time going, you know, from whatever, watching a show to going to bed. That time of transition is a wonderful moment where you might be able to pick up some time to spend uh, and actually connect with your spouse. So look through your day and try to identify these moments of transition and see if you can stretch more time out of those. Another little basic uh, idea I give is to share your social media accounts. We spend so much time trying to get everything posted to all of our social media to keep up with everybody else. But what if we actually shared the account together with our spouse and we had a couple's account and we could both post to it. We could both post interesting parts of our day. It's a great, great way to connect with each other. So we're, we're doing that. But it also might give us some more time because we don't have to both do it individually. Now it's something that we can see together, do together, share together. We could even then go through our page together and see what all of our friends are doing. And it might actually bring us together. And then last but not least, let's start learning that we've got to stop. It's not just about saying no to everyone else. We have to say yes to the marriage. If you want a healthy marriage where we have time together, you got to say yes. You got to make time for it and space for it. And really, we've got to figure out a way to not just have time, but make the time valuable. Um, And so that might be a great place to disconnect from technologies and just actually have some more time to talk. But it's not enough to just 
say no to everything else, at some point you also have to say yes to the marriage. So a few couple time savers for you and, uh, you know, just doing what we can on the program to help you be the good in the world. Uh, Up next, we're going to be talking with Jeffrey Simpson about screen cleaning and uh, his hour that'll be up next hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Yes. Welcome back, folks. Um, it's time. It's time to start wrapping up my week. Sad to say it. You're already gone. I'm already gone because my son's coming home. From That's his, so exciting. His LDS mission trip. So we'll be picking him up at the airport. Haven't seen him for two years. Super, super duper cool. But every Friday, what we like to do is turn the reins of the show over to Jeff Simpson. And he has a show called Screen Cleaning which is really a launch to the weekend. Absolutely. And it's I mean it's everything you needed to know about the entertainment industry, movies in in specific, anything with a screen. Yes. And you know, this is going to be a fantastic episode. What because, are we talking about? Well, you know, as you know, the Olympics are wrapping up here this weekend, yes. right? And the US doesn't have as many medals as we would have liked to have gotten. So, I'm giving them another chance on our show. Oh, good. We're going to be talking about movies at the or Olympics at the movies. Ooh. And then we are going to be ranking them and awarding a gold, silver, and bronze medal. Excellent. So, there may be some winners from the United States, there may be some winners from outside the United States. But I like the idea. They're getting another chance to add to the collection, to throw onto the pile. And again, you have the power now of giving medals. Mm-hmm. Yes, That's... absolutely. And we're also going to be playing a little trivia game. Our guest is actually Jerem Jordan of BYU Sports <gasps> Nation. The Jerem Jordan? That's right. And, and, and it's, it's okay? They're okay with you borrowing Jerem? Oh, yeah. This is exciting. Yeah. It's all straight ahead, folks. It's called Screen Cleaning, and uh, that's it for me. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for being with me and, uh, and, and walking me through this crazy week. We will continue the journey next week. Until then, let's take care of each other. Morning, welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm joined here by uh, Cole Wissinger. Yep, still me. <laughs> still you. He hasn't gone anywhere. Don't worry, folks. And we have got a fantastic show for you today. You know, for those of you who are just so sad that the Olympics are wrapping up this weekend, Cole, I didn't know if you were aware of that. I am. Okay. There's you, a tear on my face. You've you actually been watching the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> so um, they're wrapping up this weekend. And Matt and I have kind of been discussing on his show that the the Americans haven't been getting as many medals as they thought they should have been getting. So we're going to fix that today, possibly, because we're going to be talking Olympic movies or movies uh, at the Olympics. And we're going to award some medals, gold, silver and bronze, because that's what they do at the Olympics. So that's right. And we're going to explain more of what that means here in just a minute. We're also going to be playing a movie Olympic trivia game with our guest who's coming up here in just a minute, Jerem Jordan of BYU Sports Nation fame. Cole, you know a lot about sports, but we we wanted another expert because unless it's baseball, I really know nothing about sports. It was Yeah, it's kind of fun to be able to get in the studio with someone else that 
understands when I say sports <laughs> things. Yes, absolutely. And we also are going to bring you the very best in entertainment news over the past week. And let's do that right now. This is a category we've never had before, but in the best res- uh, resort news. Okay. The best resort news. Have I piqued your interest yet? Go ahead. Star Wars Hotel. Tell me more. Okay. So you've you it's no secret that at Disneyland and at Disney World in Orlando they're building these these various Star Wars themed parks. But apparently in Orlando, let me just read this to you. The Orlando Outpost will have an adjoining resort hotel that promises to provide a complimentary experience. I should note that it's complimentary with an E and not with an I. I don't think you can say Disney and complimentary with an I in the same sentence. I don't think popcorn is complimentary (laughs) when you go to Disney World. So they're going to provide – it's a complimentary experience for those looking to voyage to that galaxy far, far away. The unnamed resort will allow visitors to seamlessly move between hotel and theme park without ever leaving the Star Wars ecosystem. (laughs) As the Disney World blog puts it, families visiting this resort will board a starship alive with characters and stories that unfold all around them during their voyage through the galaxy. And every window has a view of space. So that sounds more like Star Trek than Star Wars. Star Wars Why? was Star Wars was always more grounded like in the places in the universe. Okay. If you're on a ship, I mean, I know the Millennium Falcon got them from point A to point B, but yes. it wasn't so much, oh, look out at how cool the galaxy is in Star Wars. It's more, we're going to play weird holographic robot chess um, for a while on the Millennium Falcon, and we're right. going to shoot to hyperdrive, and we're going to get to our next place so that we can go do more Star Warsy things. Unless I'm... it starts in most Eisley, I don't see much Star Warsy stuff here. I understood a few of the things you just said. Um, it's interesting. You know the little holographic monster <laughs> chess know, thing I'm that just, they play? I'm just teasing Come you. On. So the problem for me is as cool as this sounds, and it does sound cool, I don't know that it's really geared toward the average family. Although I suppose if you are shelling out the money to fly to Orlando to go to Disney to World, this. you may shell out a bit more to stay in this hotel, but – I'm guessing they're sh- they're spending a ton of money on this, and so that's how much it's going to cost for you to There's stay there. There's actually a second best resort news in the okay. first time we've ever had this before. I don't know if you've seen this, but they're opening Camp Crystal Lake for fans of the Friday the 13th franchise. Oh, my goodness. That is interesting. For people to go stay, like— I mean, it's it's just your. It was built to be just your average camp in the movies originally as well. Like, oh, this could happen anywhere, kind of thing. Okay, so but, it's not going to be as extensive as a Star Wars hotel. But Cole, the the thing that you got to realize is though, hotels are scary enough as it is without adding a horror movie aspect to it. Because you know, there's the how often do they wash the sheets and the <gasps> comforters. Who sat on this couch while not fully clothed? That's scary as it is. It's true. So adding a a masked killer, even if he's just playing a part, (laughs) just makes it all that much worse. I don't know if I could stay there. This is fun. Our first ever best resort news, and we got two stories for you. (laughs) Well, this this next one uh, is not one that we haven't had before, but there are two of them. There's the best sequel news. and I, I think wanna, we have this about every week. Yeah. I want to get yeah. your take, but there's not – the following one It was not one we've had before. All right. Uh, I want to get your take on this. Okay. 
Chris Tucker has announced that there's going to be a Rush Hour 4. I'll take it. Really? Absolutely. Yeah? The Rush Hour movies were hilarious, and I haven't seen Chris Tucker in a while, so what's he been up to? That's a good point. Uh... It does kind of make me miss the days when I was going to high school and every year or two you would get a Jackie Chan buddy cop movie, whether Mm -hmm. it was him uh, with Chris Tucker or him with Owen Wilson. I mean, even Around the World in 80 Days seemed like a buddy. Yeah. (laughs) It was the same genre. Yeah. So Rush Hour 1 I'm a huge fan of. They they kind of – like many sequels and trilogies, they just started to decrease in quality. So but now we need a revival. Let me ask you this, though. Would you rather see a Rush Hour 4 or would you rather see a Shanghai Noon 3? Ooh. So – I know my answer for that would be Shanghai Noon 3. Right. I think the Shanghai Noon 2, the both of them, are a strong, are stronger movies. But I think yeah. it's going to be easier for me to get quality out of a Rush Hour 4 Mm, so, like, looking back, I'm okay with the two Shanghai Noons that I got. Yeah. Um, but we can pile on some more Rush Hours. I would. That's an easy formula to just churn out and, and make me enjoy it. I thought I had read once upon a time that they were going to make a third movie for the Shanghai uh, franchise. And it was going to take place in Hollywood. Which would make sense because at the end of part two, they actually meet up with a very young Charlie Chaplin yes. in Great Britain. And he, like, hitches a ride with them. I think they're going to Hollywood or something. I don't know. I, I haven't seen it in a while. Um, it but, would work in, in the Shanghai Noon Cinematic Universe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Here is our best sequel. Oh, no, no. Never mind. This is right. a different category. I had changed it last minute. Uh-huh. Best sequel casting. Oh, okay. They have now – they're starting to cast Goosebumps 2. Okay. Which is a movie that I was embarrassed to admit that I really wanted to see. Like I couldn't justify seeing it by myself because it seems like it was geared towards kids. Oh, it was for teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I probably didn't enjoy it as much as I hoped to. But great concept for a movie. But it sounds like maybe they're going to have a totally different cast where they don't have Jack Black as R.L. Stein, which is fitting because – Goosebumps is a series of different books. It's an so anthology it, type. Yeah. So let's, instead of making it a, a mm-hmm. you know the same cast, same story, let's make it a different. Especially cast, because different the first story. one opens the door, so you start with R.L. Stein. Yeah. You have the monsters unleashed in a in a Scooby Doo kind of a way, um, and <laughs> now the dummy's still out there, and so now it can go and do whatever it wants to the rest of the world. It doesn't have to be confined to just like R.L. Stein's neighborhood. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I'll tune in. Whatever they come up with, I'll watch it. I will just won't admit that I saw it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, as promised, when we return, we're going to be speaking Olympic movies with Jerem Jordan of BYU Sports Nation. And we're going to hand out some medals coming up on the program because some of these movies are better than others. Some deserve a medal. Some deserve to be sent home in shame. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome to a 90-second movie review for the film Black Panther on BYU Radio. The much-anticipated Black Panther is now out in theaters, and Marvel has another hit on its hands. This film has two things working for it. One, it's the last Marvel film leading up to Infinity Wars, and two, it has an incredible cast. 
This is not the first film for the Black Panther character, but it is the first time a black character has been the lead in a Marvel film. That lead actor is Chadwick Boseman, who is fantastic, as is Forrest Whitaker, Lupita Nyong'o, Angela Bassett, Michael B. Jordan, Sterling Kane Brown, and many others. And yes, that is quite a good cast of actors in this film. Now, even with that cast, I wasn't blown away by this film as some people were. I did like the story, the effects, and the cast, but I wanted more. I felt as though the story relied too much on the fighting, and I wanted more backstory and character development. That's not to say this is a bad film, because it's not. I just wanted more. This is a Marvel comic book film, so there is a fair amount of violence, including people being killed on screen. Some scenes include people being stabbed and some who are shot. There are many fight scenes and many people fighting. That would include a great battle on the plains of Wakanda that includes many people and some animals. Some of the fighting is intense, and there is some profanity used in the film, including gestures. Black Panther is a film that will be noticed for good reason, but I wanted to get more from the characters and their story. It is rated PG-13. I'm giving this film a B-plus grade. I'm Sean O'Neill. This has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. Rock and roll has evolved to become a genuine art form. Mark Waite and Don Shaline invite you to join them on Through the Garage Door as they discuss the serious world of rock and roll. Yeah, but he's never done that thing that's popular in death metal. Do that again. (laughs) Okay, stop that, Mark. I can edit that out. (laughs) But I probably won't. Take a somewhat musical journey through the garage door, Monday through Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio. Talk about good. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. We've got a very special guest in the studio here today. It's Jerem Jordan of BYU Sports Nation fame. And we're turning to him because we we needed a sports expert to help us give a ranking to some of these sports or some of these Olympic movies that have come out over the years. Because some of them are, are real turkeys. Some of them are better than others. And it's almost as if some of them might deserve a medal while others deserve to be disqualified, or just fail miserably in the rankings. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to take six Winter Olympic movies, and based on our scores, which is going to be according to the old scoring in figure skating, where the highest is a 6.0, and we are going to add up our scores and award one of these films the gold medal as the best Olympic movie of all time or at least of this year if you know they might get another chance in four years but this is for this year and i'm super excited to get your take on these films jeremy because i know you're a huge movie fan in general these are a lot of movies from my childhood of the 90s too so right. this, this hits on the time when you're more impressionable the movie could be mediocre but you love it We'll get into that, right? Yeah. But th- this was a fun time. A lot of these happened uh, you know, in the 90s, some more recently. Uh, but it's, it's Olympic movie shows are always fun. They always <laughs> win. They always, they, always, uh, they always survive. They always triumph in some way. Right. They're not going to make the movie if they don't. And, and uh, it's a, the human experience, right, through the Winter Olympics. And you brought up a good point, too. Like, some of these maybe haven't aged as well, seeing, <laughs> having seen them in the 90s. That is for sure. So that might play into the, some of the scoring that we're getting into. And we've also got <laughs> Cole Wissinger here who's going to throw in his score as well. He's in a hockey jersey, so he's ready. I, I think he Look did that. that on purpose. Is that Absolutely. a Mario Lemieux yeah. jersey? What, Crosby? Who is that? Penguins, yeah. Yeah, just well, 
penguins so it's in general. In the spirit of Phil Kessel, whose sister Amanda was part of the women's gold medal winning team. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. You guys are speaking a foreign language to me, but as far as Olympic movies go, I'm a little more well versed in that. And we're actually just going to go in alphabetical order here. We've got six films, as I mentioned, about Winter Olympic sports. Uh, the first one is a comedy starring Will Ferrell. And John Heater of Napoleon Dynamite fame. And it's called Blades of Glory. It's a figure skating movie. And I'm really curious to hear what you guys think about this and what score you would assign Blades of Glory. It's hard to beat this cast. Okay, you have Will Ferrell, John Heater. You mentioned Will Arnett, Amy Poehler, Jenna Fisher, William Fitchner, Scott Hamilton even makes an appearance, the the skater. So this cast is... Craig T. Nelson. (laughs) Craig T. Nelson. It's hard to beat the cast, okay? It's really funny. It's hard to make a a Will Ferrell movie with this group and not have it at least be decent. I gave it five stars. Wow. I gave it a high score because I thought this movie was hilarious. Okay. I loved it. I thought it was so funny. And for, you know, the two dudes to be figure skating, that's just funny by itself. Making fun of that sport that takes itself very seriously. yeah. Yeah. To have it be a comedy, I thought was awesome. Blades of Glory, the title's awesome. Okay, I'm going to write this this down. You gave it a five. Five. A 5.0. 5.0, technically, yes. Cole, what did you think of Blades of Glory? So Blades of Glory to me is the third best Will Ferrell sports movie featuring that a redhead really that was also tough. in The Office. <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. So this, wow. there's this movie. There's also he has Semi-Pro and Talladega Nights, which I think is one of the pinnacles of sports comedies. Okay. We'll get to another great sports comedy later today. But this one I give a 4.8. for Blades of Glory. Wow. Now, thankfully, we're not doing the the thing where we throw out the highest and the lowest. I I don't think there are enough judges for that uh, because mine would be the lowest by far. And maybe maybe I need to go back and watch it again. I will admit it was funnier the second time I watched it. That's a classic John Heater thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, especially with Napoleon Dynamite, times, right? right? But I gave this, and maybe now I feel kind of bad, I gave it a 3.4. Oh, You're judge. just using the range of your scoring. I feel, <laughs> I feel like it was an average comedy. I did mention it was better the second time around. Very crude. It does have some great comedy players in it, as you mentioned. But, yeah, for me, just compared to some of the other Will Ferrell movies, it's really kind of a weaker playing film. And, uh, I mean, when you have to resort to a lot of those sex jokes, and I'm not trying to be a prude or anything. It's just they don't – the jokes don't land as much as they do in some of the other films. So we've got a 5.0, a 4.8, and I gave it a 3.4. Our next film is one I just revisited last night and one that I I watched many, many times in the 90s, and it's Cool Runnings. And I'll start off with this one. I gave this film a 5.5. This, to me, in terms of if you were to equate this to food, this is the comfort food of movies. Mm. It makes you feel good. There's nothing it's not an amazing movie technically or even script wise, but it's just it makes you feel good. It's got a charming cast. It's got one of John Candy's better performances, I would argue. And I almost teared up when he bursts into the uh the Olympic boardroom and after they've been disqualified and he basically lets him have it, and he says, don't don't let my mistakes in the past 
ruin these uh, these gentlemen's chances of making it or representing their country. Very, very I love powerful. That through a lot of these movies, the IOC is the bad guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's always the bad guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who likes the IOC? And then, of course, one of the best uses of the slow clap. And I don't want to spoil yes. it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but I was hoping that the three of you could join me in a slow clap. Let, let's slow right clap now. this out. Yes. One of the best, probably the best use of the slow clap, I would argue. So 5.5 for me, cool runnings. Cole, how about you? So I'm even higher on this movie because I think this is the pinnacle of sports comedy. To me, a, a true sports movie, getting beyond the scope of the Olympics, to be truly perfect, I see it as a drama. I see it telling the experience of how sports brings us together and makes us better human beings. Um but Cool Runnings is a five nine out of six. Wow! Ooh, it is as wow. close you can get to perfect without diving into the deep, heavy, make you cry kind of stuff, while still having some of that. Oh, sure! It is hilarious. It will always be gold to me. Wow! Nice, nicely done. How about you, Jeremy? I go close to that. I went, I went five seven, splitting the difference. Maybe cool I'm... Runnings is funny. It's 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 inspiring. It's one of the best sports stories ever that a Jamaican bobsled team competed in the Winter Olympics. Mm-hmm. I talked to the real-life coach in Park City a few years ago for really? a story on a former BYU soccer player who was a bobsledder. But it wasn't Blitzer, right? I don't think it was Blitzer. Blitzer. I, think I can't that's remember a the guy's name. Character. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I talked to the fictional kid. Yeah, it was the other guy. But I asked him. I said, "How close to the John Candy portrayal? How close was his portrayal to you?" Yeah. And he goes, "Not even close." I wasn't that mean. I wasn't, you know. So it it was fun to meet him. But this is a fantastic movie. When they're carrying the bobsled, when they the, you, you see the triumph after just getting there. And this is a great story. This is more real life. They don't win it, but they win it. Does that make sense? Yes. They, and this may be the most they famous. They win our hearts. They, this may be the most famous story in Winter Olympic history, save one, which yeah. we'll get to. Well, and you know, it's interesting because a few years back, I think at the last Summer Olympic, what country was it from? Was it uh, Saudi Arabia, I think? It was a country where, you know, women are are not very prominent anywhere. And the she was there. She was like dead last. She was not a very good runner, and she had all her garb on and everything. But the the fact that she was there and representing her country was the bigger story. Great story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and those happen almost every uh, Winter Olympics, but th- but this one's unique because it's the bobsled from Jamaica. Yes, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, great concept for a movie. Great movie in general. I think we all agree. You on don't that. have to win to be a winner. That's right. That's nice. And uh, the next one is a little close to my heart because, as I mentioned during the break to you, Cole, that I have three older sisters, so I've seen a lot of films that We'll are... let you take the lead on explaining this movie. Okay. <laughs> I, we, we can I, set back. I've seen a lot of films that are closer to my heart than probably most other men who would view these types of films, and it's a romantic comedy set during uh, the Winter Olympics, and it's called The Cutting Edge. This is another high-concept film where you have this uh, – you've got this prima donna figure skater queen who is impossible to work with. She goes through all these partners. And then you also have this hockey player who's at the top of his game. He's representing the United States in the Winter Olympics in hockey. Things go wrong. He loses sight in one of his eyes. And all of a sudden, he finds himself paired with this prima donna figure skater. And, you know, you have some of the typical 
uh, romantic comedy. Back and forth. They hate each other. There's a lot of falling down. But I actually think it's kind of a solid romantic comedy in general, let alone a solid uh, Olympic film. Uh, Charming leads. The acting is surprisingly good for a movie that is so cheesy in its premise and in some of its uh, execution. But again, silly premise that there's a line in here. I don't like to see Kate unhappy. Well, then, if I were you, I'd invest in blindfolds. I did laughing. <laughs> when I... Yes, um, there's a there's a move that that is used in the film that is totally illegal, but it's kind of the last fil- uh, the last move that that wins them the gold. Allegedly, you never see what happens. The funny thing I noticed about this film, though, and you, Jeremy, you really got to see it. It's shot like it's a '90s sports drink commercial. Hmm. Like every, I know what you mean when oh, you say yeah. that. Every, yeah. mm-hmm. every hockey and figure skating scene is shot like it's right out of the 90s, so it's, it, it belongs there. I gave it a 5.0. But again, I grew up with this movie, saw it dozens of times, and it's a pretty solid romantic comedy in general, so that's what I gave it. Jerem, how about you? I I've... watched the trailer <laughs> just to get a sense of what this movie is, and I'm giving it a 3.5 just based on the one-liners. Okay. One liner central. Yeah. It seemed like it was pretty sharp, kind of corny, but pretty funny. Yeah. I need to watch this movie. Okay. You definitely do. Good date night. I think that the casting director saw the first season of West Wing and said, when we're looking for kind of a small, spunky, like figure skate shaped person that can hold their own and like bite back, yeah. um, they needed Moira Kelly. Moira Kelly. That is exactly what she's doing there as well. It's. It's not a perfect movie. I'll take off the nostalgia glasses for you and rate okay. it a four zero. <laughs> okay, um, which is right about where it is. So Cole, you gave it a four zero, and Jerem, what'd you give it again? Three and a half. Three and a half. Um, interesting side note about Moira Kelly on The West Wing. They didn't. She didn't come back for season two, and they never explained why her character She's was no gone. longer there. That's true. It happens. J.J. Abrams was not involved with this, though. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's correct. This next one is one that it probably is dearer to my heart than any of these others, than any of these other films. However, I don't think the score has remained the same over the years because when you take off those nostalgia glasses like you were talking about, Cole, you realize it's probably not the greatest film. But having seen it as a kid, it means the world to me. And I, of course, am talking about D2, The Mighty Ducks. Now, technically, if you want to get technical... This doesn't take place at the Olympics, but it's it's as close as you can get for juveniles and, and Olympics. It's the Goodwill Games. And a lot of these characters are coming from Minnesota because it's about hockey. And you have all these different misfit kids that have – they each have their own special little skill Goldberg. that they contribute to the – Yeah. And uh, I gave this film a 4.8. If you asked me when I was a kid, I probably would have given it a perfect six because it was the best thing that I'd ever seen. Great soundtrack. Again, another comfort food movie. Uh, very close to home because the the climactic scene at the end takes place in Anaheim, which is where I'm from. Home and of the Anaheim Ducks. 
yes. used to be the Mighty Ducks, yeah. but now just the Ducks. So that's one of the reasons why I confused this movie. It, I gave it a 4.5 because I can't really differentiate it from the other Ducks movies and properties that were coming out at the time. There was the Mighty Ducks, or okay. D3, or the animated series where they were all giant mutant hockey players. <laughs> or trying to remember if that wasn't all connected to like Darkwing Duck and the DuckTales cinematic universe. And then... Right around the same time, also, the Anaheim Mighty Ducks were winning the Stanley Cup with Jean Sebastian Giger. And so, all of these late 90s, early 2000s duck things are just a blender in my brain. And I can't get them straight. It's the. Just I'd remember seen this. It. I know I've seen it. Just remember this. It's the one where they introduce the knuckle puck. And uh... that's maybe, I think that is why it's there's a little ding in the scores because I remember going out because of this movie, buying a hockey stick, buying a <laughs> hockey puck, putting it on its side, and trying to execute the knuckle puck. It doesn't work like it does in the movies. Doesn't work. Okay, I give this a 5.1. Okay. It is an entertaining, fun movie. It's trying to replicate 1980 USA versus Russia in a way with kids in the 90s, but it built a brand strong enough. To where kids outside of Minnesota and Wisconsin and Canada wanted to play hockey. That is a strong storytelling mechanism and brand if you can get kids in L.A. to want to play hockey. Now, Wayne Gretzky had gone to the Kings, and that certainly played a role in all of this. But you keep what you had in the first movie, and then you put a letter and a number together, and I know what you're talking about. (laughs) D2. That's a strong brand. Wow. And and you got to admit, though. When Iceland crushes the flying V, didn't that just crush you? Wasn't that like unprecedented? You're just like, whoa, whoa. they just broke up they the flying somehow. V. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of want to go back and watch that, but then not admit to anybody I went back and watched that. So I just made there's, you that. There's street cred with the millennials and the 30-somethings, right? Oh, yeah. And watching D2. If you say D2, I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. People know. For sure. Yeah. Okay, so we got a couple more here. Cole, I'm going to let you talk about this one first. It's Eddie the Eagle, which is one of those movies that has an amazingly interesting story. True story. For me, the execution probably isn't as interesting as the story, so I want to hear your take on this real quick. Eddie the Eagle has a fantastic soundtrack surrounding this true story of Eddie Edwards. Um, People got the nickname from his last name, but Eddie the Eagle Edwards, who just as a small child wanted nothing more than to be in the Olympics. He He would bug his parents and bug his dad most of all about trying to get there, and just that's what he wanted to do. So he became a downhill skier, and he was pretty good at it, and the big bad British version of the IOC, like their own in-house deciding who gets to go to the Olympics, decided he wasn't the brand they wanted to push. Right. And so he found an event, the Ski Jump, which is suicide on skis, that the British team didn't have a person representing them. And so he went out, he qualified on his own, he did all of it on his own, he learned how in a very short, realistic, unrealistically, but realistic to the story, short amount of time, um... And he went to the Olympics and came in dead last, but he qualified and went. And it's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, they, they, they try to focus more on his personality and he's just never – he'll never give up and he's just full of optimism and he's there representing his country, like you said, the only one. So I think that counts for something. It's interesting you mentioned the timeline on this because with most of these movies, especially the ones with the high concept – 
it's always like a ridiculously short amount of time in which they prepare for the Olympics, whereas all all the people that are competing against them have been doing it since they were babies. So this is another one of those. Anyone can just show up and oh, go yeah. to the Winter Olympics. Yeah. That's what it feels like, yeah. right? I gave you this can be one... from Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> I gave this one a 3.9. Again, I, I thought it was a great idea. Uh, for a movie based on a true story, but the execution just didn't do it for me. That They got plus points because it had Hugh Jackman, Wolverine in it. Um, but again, it was just a really uneven film for me and not as inspiring as some of these other films that we're talking about. So I gave it a 3.9. Cole, what did you give it again? I gave it a 5.2 five five because five it two. captures a good feel, I think, but the soundtrack is just off the charts amazing and just the the font of the texts that they threw on the screen to give us where he's at in his journey and what he's doing. It was all played for an equal amount of comedy and cool, and it happens to happen at the same Olympics as uh, Cool Runnings, the 1988 mm, Calgary. We, didn't they even throw something in there? They had the Jamaican bobsled team yeah, or something. His, they made some reference uh-huh, to it. They Eddie's story is going to be brushed away yeah. because we got Jamaica coming up. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, you gave it a, a 5.2. What about you, Jerem? I go four and a half. I like this movie. I like Taron Edgerton a lot. I thought he did a really nice job with Eddie Edwards. It's fun to have Hugh Jackman be this cranky American, basically Wolverine without claws kind of character. It's fun to see the process that someone goes through to kind of get into the Olympics and live out their personal dream. And you gave it a five point four and a half. Oh, four and a half. Four and a half. Oh my, four and a half. Okay, the last film, and I, Jerem, I'm hoping that you can take the lead on this because this seems to me, of all these films that we've talked about, probably the closest to the truth that we've seen in any of these films. Um, it's a great American story. So, and it's it's miracle. It's miracle. Tell and us about the, miracle. That's the perfect name, right? The story of the 1980 Winter Olympics USA hockey team in 1999. Sports Illustrated called the U.S. beating Russia in the semifinals, not the final, by the way. People forget that. Yeah, the greatest sporting event of the 20th century. Bunch wow. of amateurs, youngest U.S. hockey team ever, playing a bunch of veteran. Uh, Five of the last six gold medal winning Russian hockey players. The machine. The machine. The U.S. trails 3-2 after the second period. Herb Brooks inspires the team to victory. The same team, uh, local note, uh, lit the torch in 2002 at the Winter Olympics here in Salt Lake. This is considered the greatest sports story ever by Americans. Mm. This is – is, and I thought they did a really good job with this. Really inspiring. Fun. Uh, Kurt Russell's fantastic as the head coach. I love Miracle. I give it a six. Whoa, I think a perfect is, six. It's fantastic. It helps that the story's great, but I thought they executed well enough to stay in the six range. Okay. How about you, Cole? So I give it a five-six, slightly below, um, but because right after I watched this, I went and watched the ESPN 30 for 30 movie of Miracles and Men, and just seeing the... All the places where they kind of tweaked to make the story more plotty in the in the Miracle movie. Yeah. Um, there was still some strong, true things they could have stuck to. And just seeing the actual story of the guys was really powerful to me as well. Um, but still, really amazing sports movie. So I am clearly the cranky, impossible-to-please judge here. I gave it a higher score than most of these, but maybe I just need to go back and watch it again. I, I watched it a couple years ago on TV, so there are a lot of commercial breaks. I gave it a 5.2. It's definitely a better-than-average sports movie. 
Uh, great performances, especially from Kurt Russell. And I love it when films get great performances out of completely unknown actors. And I think one of the athletes uh, in the film is actually the son of one of the actual athletes. I can't remember the name. but uh, So, yeah, I love it when unknowns can, can step it up and give a great performance. I gave it a 5.2. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to have a little trivia contest. We're going to tabulate all of these scores And then once we do our crosstalk with BYU Sports Nation, we are going to unveil the gold-winning, silver-winning, and bronze-winning movies. So, Cole and Jerem, I'm going to give you guys some trivia questions here. Now, these are not not Olympic trivia questions. These are Olympic movie trivia questions. And I, I... I'm just going to knock a couple of these out because you guys mentioned them while you were talking about some of these movies. For instance, the films Cool Runnings, uh, The Cutting Edge, and Eddie the Eagle all feature athletes competing in which Olympic Games place and year? 1988 Calgary. That's right. Shout out to Greg Rubel. And then, Jeremy, you already referenced this one. What is the name of the hockey coach portrayed by Kurt Russell in Miracle? Herb Brooks. Herb Brooks. And, okay, we're going to go with you, Cole, on this one first. Bring it on. In the film Blades of Glory, mm-hmm. Will Ferrell's character makes a pass at what real-life figure skater? Ooh. <laughs> so, so can you pronounce her name? Um, No. <laughs> I got it. Go ahead. Oksana Bayul. Oksana. No? Was that that's, her? That's not who it? I was going oh. for. He Kerrigan. actually. Harding. Nancy Kerrigan. Yeah. Nancy Kerrigan. Why? Yeah, they meet in the in the courtroom when when they're being <laughs> banished from. Yeah, so Nancy Kerrigan, we're going for her on that one. I'll be. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was one of the Russian. He makes a joke mm-hmm. about Oksana Bayul. There you what's go. What's hotter than? What's colder than ice? I don't know. Oksana Bayul. <laughs> <laughs> Jerem, what team does Team USA beat to win the gold in the film Miracle? I think you already mentioned this one too. To win gold. Or yes. Oh, to win the gold. They yes. beat Finland, but they beat Russia in the semifinal. Very good. People think that they beat Russia Very to win good. the— By the way, that was never live on TV in the U.S. It was delayed. Really? Yes. Oh, that's unfortunate. Wild, right? Which is weird, because hmm. 1980, wasn't that Lake Placid? Like, that was in the United States. Yes, but the NBA Finals the year wow. before were tape delayed. This is a different era. Magic for, yeah, Magic Johnson as a, a rookie winning it. Tape delayed! Like— Bird and Magic got, they changed kind of the sports dynamic on live TV. See, this is why we needed you here today. I just assumed it was uh, the gold match. Well, now you know. Now you know. Uh, Cole. Yes. What is Fulton Reed's, portrayed by Eldon Hansen, or Eldon Henson, signature move in the film D2, The Mighty Ducks? So is that the knuckle puck that you already mentioned? Is that your answer? It is. That is incorrect. Jerem. I'm trying to remember. Fulton Reed's signature move in the film D2, The Mighty Ducks. Is he the kid from Texas? No. No. I'll give you a clue. It's also his signature move from the first, the original, The Mighty Ducks. Flying V? Something with that? I can't remember. He has a a slap shot that is unrivaled. This is just the guy with like the really impressive slap yeah, shot. Just brings that's hate. like so much bigger than everybody else. And then they find another big guy for the second one. They call him the Bash Brothers. Yes, Senor Foggy in Daredevil. 
That is uh-huh. true. I, that is t- true. Once I watched the trailer for D2, I thought, oh, that's who that is. Yeah. I couldn't place the face, and now I'm yes. se- Senor Fuggy. So he has an amazing slap shot. That was it. Okay, Jerem. Yes. Craig T. Nelson's presence in the film Blades of Glory as Will Ferrell's and John Heater's coach is due to his presence in a sports-related television show. Name that sports-related television show. The Coach. We also would have just accepted Coach. Oh, yes. That is correct. Yes, he is Coach. He is the Coach from Coach, which is funny because in Blades of Glory they call him Coach. Coach. It's very fitting. Okay, Cole. Yes. You get another D2... Uh, Bring question it on. here. Why not? <laughs> In the film D2, The Mighty Ducks, the final hockey match of the Junior Goodwill Games is played in this arena. Is it? Is it the? It wouldn't be the Staples Center because that's where the Kings play. But and it has to be Staples the name. Center. Has to be the name at the time of the movie. The Disneyland Ice Palace. That is incorrect. <laughs> Jerem, what was it called at the time of the filming? Was it the Forum? Did they play at the Forum? Where did they play? Let me give you... Uh, look, you, It looks like you need a bottle of water. Smart Water Stadium? The, the sunny whatever. <laughs> it was the Arrowhead Pond of Anaheim. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> but again, so before I the Angels assumed, were the just, L.A. Angels of yeah, Anaheim. Yeah, they just went all was, in on uh, Mighty... Yeah, Anaheim just, Mighty Ducks. I just assumed that would be easy, but I'm from Anaheim, and sometimes yeah. I'm, I'm I need surprised. I've seen the film recently. It's okay. been a while. I'm always surprised when I meet people that have never been to Disneyland because I just went dozens and dozens right. of times growing up. And then, Jerem, this is the final uh, question and possibly the most difficult to answer. Oh, boy. Paraphrase the 1988 Olympic president's reference to Eddie Edwards during the closing ceremony. No clue. <laughs> Cole? So was this the one where he quotes, like, the founder of the Olympics when he says it doesn't matter so much if you win gold, but that you show up and you try your best and you take part in the games? No, and they don't actually they don't actually Because that's the refer quote to him, the movie ends with. They don't actually refer to him as Eddie Edwards or Eddie the Eagle. Okay. The quote is this. You have broken world records and you have established personal bests. Some of you have even soared like an eagle. That's right. Aww. That's when he stands up in the, the moment you were talking about in the film, stands up and waves his hand, and everybody thought it was this great moment, and That's it was. Right. So well done. You guys did surprisingly well. Who knew the Winter Olympics had this much content? I know, you know right? I mean? When is the next great curling movie going to come from? That's where <laughs> I want to see. I'm curling. guessing it's going to be a comedy if they do come out with it. Oh, no. Straight up heady, biopicy, Oscar Beatty drama about curling. Starring Will Ferrell. Starring Will Ferrell. Okay. Well, in a moment here, we're going to we're gonna tabulate all these scores. And during our crosstalk with BYU Sports Nation, I assume it's going to be Spencer and Jerem. No, Jeremy and Jason. Yeah, Jason today, excited. I, I, I got to go, by the way. I got to get ready for the show. Okay, so we're going to come back, and with Jeremy and Jason, we are going to unveil, we're going to award these films, the gold, silver, and bronze, and all the others are going to be disqualified, sent home in shame. Bye, Jeff. I got to go. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. That's all coming up when we return. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Champions, my friends, and we'll keep 
Welcome back to, uh, I almost said BYU Sports Nation, but welcome back to Screen Cleaning. We're going to be speaking with our friends at BYU Sports Nation, Jerem and Jason. And Jerem, I am super impressed with your ability to run from our studio to your studio, get in makeup, and be back in time for this crosstalk. Way to go. He's out of breath. <laughs> okay. I think I'm all right. I'm excited because before we reveal which movie is going to go home with the Olympic gold, I realized that I forgot to ask you one trivia question. And Jason, you can certainly help mm-hmm. out with this one. In fact, if the both of you can answer it in unison, you get mm-hmm. extra points. Oh, okay. So in the film Cool Runnings, mm-hmm. what is Team Jamaica's bobsled chant. Uh, yeah, I've, I have not seen that what since it, it came out. I have no idea. And this is, so that I should differentiate, there's the song and there's the chant. That's the, one that they, that's the one that they start out with. But what do they, when they embrace their Jamaica-ness, what, uh, what is the chant that they go with? And it's different from what Cole's going to play here in a second. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know this. I honestly probably saw it when it came out and haven't seen it since. So it's... You feel... know, Jamaica, we are a bobsled team. So that's the song. C- can you play that for us, Cole? I believe Jamaica, we have a bobsled team. We have yes. <laughs> one there is. I know one junior. You sank the fastest of the fastest of Jamaican sprinters. Go to Olympics, fight for Jamaica. So that's the song. The chant is actually feel the rhythm, feel, feel the, the rhyme, rhyme, get on up. It's bobsled time. Boom. There it is. Yeah. So, Jason, you weren't a part of this discussion, but... Uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Whatever. It's fine. I'm, I've, I'm not even, I haven't even thought twice about it. <laughs> so the films that were in competition with one another were Blades of Glory, mm-hmm. Cool Runnings, The Cutting Edge... Oh, that's why... That's why Jerem was watching all of those trailers in our office yesterday. Yes. Yep. Uh, we've got um, uh, ooh, Miracle... D2, The Mighty Ducks. Quack, quack. And then the other one was Eddie the Eagle. Mm Mm-hmm. And we had a three-judge panel, and we we graded these very meticulously. Um, We took this very seriously. We did, actually. But we're going to start off with the bronze winner. Okay. And it was one that probably would have scored a little higher had you asked me when I was uh, a young buck watching this movie, because I I probably wore out the VHS. I watched it so many times. The bronze medal goes to the film D2, The Mighty Ducks, Mm, that had a combined score of 14.4. And uh, the silver medal, and this was a super close, this was like a few tenths of a second, I guess you could equate it to in running terms. But uh, the, the silver medal goes to... The film that Jerem actually scored the highest, and that is the Kurt Russell starring film Miracle. Hmm. I've heard of that story. Gets the silver, even though they ultimately won the gold that year. I was going to say, shouldn't they get the gold? (laughs) Wait a minute. So that had a combined score of 16.8. And one of the little tidbits I neglected to share earlier was that apparently Kurt Russell took a pay cut so that all the extras in the film could have warm meals instead of brown bag lunches. Isn't that nice? This is the type of guy he is. Yeah. Okay. He goes from that to wanting to destroy other worlds. Oh, yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy. That's right. 
Yeah. Ego, the living planet. So, of course, it should come as no surprise then that the gold medal winner is one of the teams that in the actual events came pretty much in dead last was Cool Runnings with a score of 17.1 gets the gold medal. Jamaica. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, Cool Runnings. Again, this is like the comfort food of movies, Cool Runnings. Wouldn't you agree, Jason? Yeah, it's it's a it's one of those. Look, we were talking about this in the office because again, I didn't realize why he was watching all of these trailers. <laughs> but we afterwards we thought, you know, like late eighties, early nineties, there was so much cheese. Oh yeah, in movies, like it was so thick. But but it was it was a simpler time. Yeah, you could enjoy the movies. It just, it just not, felt it's, good. It's not about an American. Uh... Group of people either. It's no, it's Jamaica. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's just a feel-good like story. It's a yeah. feel-good story, and it had John Candy in it. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that you guys can make us feel good right now by telling us what is coming up on your show here in just seven minutes and 50 seconds. The regular minutes, season for seconds. men's hoops <gasps> is over tomorrow. The Cougars host no! sixth-ranked Gonzaga. Huge game for the Cougars. Could BYU for the fourth year in a row pull off the upset? We're going to discuss the various possible scenarios tomorrow and what's the best one for BYU going into the West Coast Conference Tournament we're also mm. going to have Steve Cleveland on the program we will look back on last night's win at Portland look ahead to the big game against Gonzaga and and yeah I mean what what a win tomorrow could do for BYU heading into Vegas there's it's that's that's kind of what we're focusing on now is one more game and then it's tournament time the latest bracketology no not that kind in the NIT BYU and Utah projected to play each other is that something you want and the beginning of spring training games uh, today on mm. the scale of Jack Morris oh, to Jacob yeah. Bregman we'll discuss how excited we are that's a great sh- that's a packed show and I think so. I'm sad that you can't answer any of those questions right now with us here on our show. We think it's the cool runnings of shows. <laughs> so now, if cool runnings is the pinnacle of Olympic movies, mm-hmm. what Olympic movie should be sent home in shame, disqualified altogether? Oh, wow. Uh, they'd have to give me more time on that Ones one. I don't know because they were so bad. They didn't see the light of day for me to even know what they are. Well, if you... <laughs> If you go according to our last place film on this list, I was disappointed because I graded this rather high. Uh, It's the romantic comedy with the preposterous premise, The Cutting Edge, where you have a diva figure skater who pairs up with an ex-hockey player to go for the gold in the couple's figure skating. Uh, That happens every year. That old story? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> have you seen this film, Jason? I have not seen that movie. This no. is a great. I certainly know all about it. I know. <laughs> I know the movie. I just have not seen it. It's a great date night movie, and it's kind of a solid uh, romantic comedy in general. So, all if right, you put if that you, on the list, if you want to impress the wife this weekend, okay, put on the cutting edge. All right, and you guys will be saying topic the whole time. Just go watch it. You'll know what I mean. All right, I'll understand what that means. It's I'll a laugh later. In the movie. I will laugh later about that. <laughs> it's a joke, Grenade. <laughs> and, Jerem, thank you so much for being one of our judges. This was an important yeah, task. Was fun. We needed to get the U.S. some more uh, uh, gold medals, although they didn't win gold. We needed to get them some more medals in general, and you helped us do that today here you on got the show. You make it gold. <laughs> All right, you guys, go knock them dead. Have a great show. Thank Thanks. you, Jeffrey. Okay, Cole, as you know, we like to end each show with our panning for good segment. There's good in them there hills.
So a theme in a couple of these Olympic films that we've been talking about are all about the everyman being given this extraordinary opportunity to represent his country and to defy all the odds, all the obstacles that are put in his place. And at least in one of those cases with Eddie the Eagle, it's actually a true story. But I think those are the stories that really make the Olympics great. Those athletes that are representing their country, they might not have a shot at all to compete against these countries where they have athletes that have been doing this their entire lives. But what makes those stories so great is that they represent us, the people that are the underdogs, right? The people that just want a chance. And they may fail, but the fact is they showed up and they failed with honor. They represented their countries and they did something that so few people can say that they did and they made it to the Olympics. It wasn't the answer to your trivia question, but the end of Eddie the Eagle does have a quote from one of the founders of the modern Olympics saying just that, that it is important to participate and represent your country more so than winning, more so than coming home with gold. The honor and the ability to go to the Olympics is second to none. Yeah, and it gives people like you and me, Cole, who are never going to the Olympics, let's face it. (laughs) That's very true. It gives us hope that not just in the Olympics, but in life, we can do difficult things even when we have people beating us down the whole time, even when we have people telling us it's impossible, you'll never succeed at anything that you're trying to do. We can do it. And as long as you try, I might actually be more athletic than Eddie the Eagle as an (laughs) Olympian, but he, I will never be a ski jumper because I haven't tried. He put in the work. That's the takeaway on this episode of Screen Cleaning. BYU Sports Nation is up next. 